Radio Shack. Okay. What? The 80s called. Welcome to the Coco Nation, the world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. Hello, everybody. How y'all doing today? Doing Sounds well a bit better here. than you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit under the weather today, so we'll get through these through these introductions, and I'll go back and take a nap. How's that sound? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> just just keep a little remote thing so you can keep you know highlighting people when they're talking. Yeah, I'll just pull the stream deck over on my bed here. Um, all right, let's see. First up, we got Mark Overhoser. Hello there. Glad to be here today. All right. And we got L. Curtis Boyle. Welcome to the show, everyone. Yeah, Rick Uland. Oops. Okay, and then we got Ron Delvo. And Arizona, welcome to everyone. It's warm here, mm. finally. <laughs> what, 85? Yeah. You're going to be, yeah. <laughs> About 20 here. Uh, center warm. square, we got Ken Waters. Hello, everybody. And Brian Weasler. Hello, all. Welcome to the show. And on the bottom row, yours truly. Uh, next up, Tim Linder. Tim's here. Boy, is he small. Yeah. In the house. <laughs> yeah. I'm he's uh, real pixelated, too. Small face, big voice. Yep. <clears throat> I think he's calling in on dial up. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, Nick Marentes. Greetings and salutations. From down And Good I forgot morning. to put any co-hosts on this thing this morning. Nobody reminded me. Oh, don't forget to put co-hosts on. This is okay. your first time doing it, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll get on that here. Uh, okay, first up today, we got Brian Weasler. Oh, you're going to go ahead and put me on the spot. That's right. Okay. You asked for it. <laughs> Ask and you shall receive. At least, uh, at least you guys are not afraid to uh, meet one's demands, right? So, Brian uh, Industries. <laughs> Brian Industries. <laughs> Let's Worldwide. do one, one thing real quick here. There we are. Uh, give me one second. One second. Please I was tweaking one by. thing. I'm sorry, but your second has expired. <laughs> there we go okay now i'm ready here Ugh, all red-faced and everything here so okay so last week um or not last week but the uh maybe it was last week i showed a uh, uh an hdl keyboard and yep. um let's see here let me do this here let me do a quick switch of the camera There we are. Okay. So last week you saw something that looked like this. And it was the one that was in the box that I showed. This is another one that I had that's not in the box. Um, I still have the template for it. I have the screw bag for it that has the little spacers that we talked about. 
And I also have the, the, the template. This is just another one that I have. The other one, like I mentioned, was one that was in the box. And that's why I was, uh, that's why I was intrigued by that one. But this is another one that I have. Uh, this one's a little more used. The, the, the keys, it needs a little TLC, a little bit of cleaning. Uh, but I have all the parts for it, the spacers and the, uh, uh, the little push downs to, to lock it in, into place. And uh, so about three weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, Neil uh, Blanchard had reached out to me and uh, wanted if I'd be interested in this keyboard that he had. And uh, I really liked it. Voila. Uh, does anybody recognize what model this is? Yeah, it's got the one PF programmable function key. Yep. And a HJM. And I'm trying to remember the name of the company that made it. Try to keep my hand off. Because it, it's one of the ones that actually has like the square brackets on the left and right arrows there when you yeah. put down shift. Yes, it does. Yep. It that has one's a good one. Square brackets there. And a square bracket no, not HGL. This one no, was made by Keytronics. Uh, Keytronics. That, yep. There it is. Uh, yep. Uh, Curtis had it. Yeah. This one's made by Keytronics. And yeah, uh, the keycaps here with those extra symbols when you ship is, is what inspired me to work with Ed Snyder and getting the Nitrous 9 keyboards made because okay. we added a whole bunch of those for the Nitrous 9 keyboard specifically. Yeah, this, so it has your left and right arrow, and then here's your right bracket, and above the left arrow is a, a key DL, labeled DL. DL. Yep. Yeah, for shift, delete, redelete the whole line. And then over here is your up and down arrows, and the down arrow has the uh, the left bracket. And then there's the uh, this key here labeled uh, PF. Programmable function. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sign, I think, has something too, doesn't it? Um, Stop. So yeah, this one here is a, this one's labeled LC and it has kind of a square with a line through it. I thought that was kind yeah, of Yeah, that's a zero and LC is lowercase. That's your lowercase toggle if you hit shift zero. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And I just, the I, I sign just, beside the P says something too, I think. Stop. Yep. It says the word stop. Yep. <laughs> Tim, Tim is in there shouting it out. <laughs> And we're talking. Sorry. I thought he was telling us to shut up, so I was just ignoring him. <laughs> That's a good one, man. Shift but I thought it was kind of scroll. But it, it it talks. I mean, this thing here. I don't know if you've any of you have ever had one of these in your hands or not. But this thing is heavy. It is built like a tank. I think it's almost as heavy as the Coco itself. Um, I have not. I've I've typed on them at the show mm -hmm. at Rainbow Fest when it was announced. But I've I've never actually had one or had anybody near here with one. The only people here had. I think we had a couple HDLs and a couple Super Pros from Mark Data, and that's the only external keyboards I've actually, you know, had a chance to like lift separately and and look at them, you know, up close. Otherwise, it's always been at the fest, and they're inside Cocos, and you're you know allowed to like pick up the Coco. So, right, another and twenty dollars to ship it, right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. This uh, so the model number for it is is KB five hundred, and uh, I was doing a little bit of reading on it here. Um, Let's see the back. Yeah, the ribbon comes out of the bottom and loops all the way up to the top. Yeah, so the ribbon, so when you have it in the Coco, yeah, this would go this way and then plug in right here on the system board. Hmm. So it had the serial number and uh, KB500. And uh, can't actually see that too, too well. Well, that's the, the older uh, D&E boards with the actual connector. Yeah, with the, yeah. the pins. Yeah, so it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't use the ribbon. This would be the pin. Do you know if it really works? Uh, I haven't installed it uh, installed it yet, but uh, if you read the reading in here, it probably does work because they're very proud of it. It says the KB uses capacitance foam switches, Ooh. Uh, which never give Ooh. keyboard bounce. So you can uh, still buy those, luckily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. This the thing is uh, it's it's all sealed thing. in here, so it's on a circuit board. 
and uh, there's four screws you could take the back of this thing you off. Know, of that's here. amazing that it's the, only four screws. The capacitive right. foam metal gets um, breaks down. Breaks down, yeah. So, but you can buy new foam things to stick in it. There's, there's oh, okay. Franklin Franklin Ace computers use the same thing. That's yeah, you're not you're not going to want to keep that. You'll have to send that off to here. Oh, <laughs> in, in, in a climate controlled warmer environment yes yeah exactly. it would be much better yeah. <laughs> i think you should do that for the salvation of the item right yeah and it, it says that the kb is also uh, the only keyboard that will fit all versions of the of the color computer whether it's an a b c d e f e t tdb 100 coco 2 uh, a and coco 2b so i don't know they were they were pretty proud of their uh uh, hmm. of their uh, keyboard there, but uh, no, I thought it was very interesting. The color scheme would match a, a silver Coco one quite well too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, with, with the darker keys and stuff and the, yeah. the gray. Yeah. Yep. The gray, the gray keys and uh, no whites mm-hmm. will look better on a silver. Thank God they kept a red brick key. Yeah. <laughs> That's canon. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah, it is. <laughs> So with that, I thought maybe I'd share a few other ones that I have here. Um, this one here. Oh, yeah. That's the one I that's have. That's the Super mind. Pro by Mark Data? This, yep, this yeah. is the Mark Data Super Pro. That yep. one I've typed on. That is probably my favorite one to type on, except maybe the HGL. Oh, I've got one of those. That's the tall kind keyboard. Of interesting because it does, it does uh, has these brackets here, so it's it goes all the way to the bottom of the case. And it and uses foam to keep it in place. Foam yeah, but use a yeah, double-sided foam there. Right. Um, and like a lot of them, you have to there's that center post that would be about right here. You have to uh you have to cut that off in order for this to fit in place. But and that thing it, felt so solid in the cocoa because of that whole mounting system that you showed. Yeah, because it yeah, it sets all the around and bounce. It was like solid. It felt like a real professional And you can up. see here there's this masking tape, which obviously it's deteriorated and stuff like that. But this would have been taped under the underside of the top case. Yeah, it's double sided tape. Yep, to uh, to get it uh, so it would set in your bot like this. Then in the cocoa, it looks like it was installed at one time, but you removed it. Yes, it was installed in a cocoa, and I did remove it uh, to put a different original keyboard back into that uh, computer. But I wanted to kind of keep these all together um, in a group here. So, but it could be installed very easily. Now I'm not positive, but I believe the Dragon uses that same keyboard, or at least the same. Oh, manufacturing it sure looks the same there's no red brake key though what's kind of interesting is that uh and i'm not sure how clear this comes in but the all the keys have this little notch right here and even on the sides they have them so it's like the keys all fit together like legos if, if that was kind of a if there was a, an analogy um there's all the individual keys that are soldered onto the circuit board but the spacing must be such that way they can all kind of interlock together to kind of form one solid that's a mechanical keyboard, keyboard isn't it i guess you call it like a mechanical key i mean Very each one much of these so. in, look at those yeah, yeah that's a mechanical keyboard it's got a spring i'm sure and a yeah yep, yep. each one is individual so that was that a would, great feeling keyboard that's all i can say yeah that Several one should have the uh, uh I, I have like one. two wipers that the key separates so that when you push the key down the springs the the wipers being spring loaded kind of pushed together mm-hmm. oh okay uh, that, Inside the type the key bounce. Yeah. It's it's like a clapper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Copper clappers. <laughs> hey Brian. Yes. Can can make it says remember the first step to admitting you have a problem. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I I just keep buying more stuff trying to solve the problem. And I just, I don't know, and just never seem to get cured, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) And then one other, one other keyboard, I think I might've shared this before, but uh, anyway, it's still in the bag. So it's a little hard to see, but I think we've all seen this before. This was actually sold by Radio Shack. It was sold as a surplus. But it's the Coco 3 keyboard, but it's the one that was the black. And I think we yeah, it's deluxe. the deluxe Coco original. Deluxe yeah, it was, yeah, deluxe. So you, you, you've never touched that keyboard, have you? Nope. It's still in the original, it still has original staples and everything. So it's still in its bag there. But uh, I don't know if I'd shared that one or not uh, before. So that, if it wasn't original. for that little tear in the corner that would have 1980s uh, era. <laughs> Potentially, <laughs> yes. Yep. So, but. Uh, I mean, nothing special about this other than the fact that it's the you know it's the black. Oh, it's, and like, it's it, was, it, was, it, was, it was used for the the deluxe as as uh, yeah, would have been mentioned. The deluxe, yeah. There's a comment in the chat here from Tommy Gunnison said high tech keyboard like on the Dragon 32, the D64 had Alps, and I think was the Mark Data Alps. I can't remember. I don't know. I don't think it had much written around it. That would have been on each switch. So. Wow, I can't remember. It was a beautiful keyboard typo. That's all I can say. Like the mounting bracket made it so steady, it didn't shift or bounce around inside the case at all. Right. So it just felt beautiful. The type of solid, yeah, very very heavy. Um, it kind kind of reminds you of the Model One, doesn't it? Yep, it does look like it though. It doesn't have the key bounce problems the Model One had. No. Enhance, focus, focus. New tech, me tech. My yeah, high tech. Te- high tech is what it says there. It says high tech right there, but that's what it says on the circuit board. So I'm well, not sure if that was the manufacturer. Under- what's it say underneath of it? Corporation. Whoops. It's kind of weird to sit there and try to position this. And a part number. It's also like- blurry. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, almost focuses. Your, your, your table's it, focused well, but. It's industries. Industries. Yeah, a high tech uh, cor- corporation on the bottom at one zero seven F zero four four G. So, but, maybe uh, it'd be better if it's uh, Brian Tech uh, Corporation. <laughs> Let's see here. Zoom in just a little bit there. Okay. Um, yeah, that was it with the keyboards that I wanted to wanted to share here. Or wait, I got seventy two different joysticks to show us, or what? <laughs> no, no. But I guess I did have one more here. I don't. I'm not sure. I can't remember what the model was. This. I'm sorry. I was going to look it up, and I forgot. I forgot to write it down. Maybe you guys will recognize this one. Oh yeah, that's the uh, first generation of uh, what did they call it? The premium keyboard. Yeah, I was going to uh, look it up Micronics or, or something. Yeah, this might have been the Micronics. I, w- I had a sticky note on it, and I lost it. Because um, Micronics made two different keyboards. The first one had the function keys all over the damn place, which is this one. You know, it's yeah. like the clear keys way yeah. beside the keyboard on the left, and there's F1, F2, F3, F4 is all scattered on the right-hand side. And a lot yeah, of people complained about the key layout. So they made another one that they charged an extra 10 bucks for where they put the keys in proper spots. <laughs> yeah, because was that the one that had, the, had them grouped together right there as a four? Yeah, no, like the HL had F1, F2, F3, F4 on either side of the space bar. I'm trying to remember what the okay. premium. That's uh, the break key is not red. But this is the first generation by that company. Then they did a second one where they kind of shifted stuff around. Yeah, because this in here has the two here and the two there. Yeah, yeah. that's HL. Flip it over. Yeah. You know, it says return instead of enter too. Yes. Oh, look at that. 
the keys look a lot like the old teletype ones too. So that's probably why Apple always used return. So how is that stuck on this one here? No, the, the green board. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a green circuit board and uh, the keys are, uh, the keys are soldered directly to it. Oh, okay. Sure so it doesn't unscrew. Nope. The, yep. No, the board is, uh, is held in and then it looks like every key is like snapped into this metal frame. Hmm. Oh, so that's metal. I remember seeing these at Fest, but I never really did much with them because this was not a keyboard layout I liked. You know, I wonder if that fits in the in the hole of the cover of the model, the Coco One, because it's awful short on the edges. Was there another piece that went over it? Um, there might have been. This is all I had for it right now. Yeah, but, yeah, this, but there's no ribbon cable. This, of course, uses the the pins again. Yeah. But if you look on the on the front of that thing compared to another keyboard, I don't think it's wide enough. The black. Yeah, I don't have a case that's loose right now to to, to put, check. Put it. another keyboard next to it, and see if it's short. That's probably not the actual bezel. That's the one that came with the key switches. They yeah, see how wide that black is. Yeah, they have another thing to go. There must the must be another. Yeah. Piece. Yep. yeah, I mean, like like this would have been the bezel here for this one, and I mean, it doesn't. Quite yeah, fit well, over it, but you can no, see well, that. But this is where the edge of the case would have been right, right here, or the opening on the Coco one. Right, so you're missing a piece. You could probably yep. make one up. Yep, with an exacto knife. Okay, yeah, like I said, I forgot to look up the model. I had I had found one time, and the only the last well, before I show the last thing. I was looking at some stuff here, and I guess I'm looking for some insight as to what this might be, or if it's even Coco related. I'm not sure. So this is a six-pin DIN that does go into the jack, like on a Coco 3. Which jack? The joystick? Joystick. I'm sorry. Joystick. Yeah, the joystick. Yep. But yet it has this three-pin. It's an audio cable for a weird cassette recorder. I've seen them. I have one like that myself in my hand. It's a uh, same exact thing as what you have, only it's four pins. Wait a minute. Oh, well, there's a, there is a four-pin one, and that was used to plug into the cassette. So that way you could plug this into a PC or into like a like a, even your phone or something like that where you could play the audio directly in and make it like a digital cassette recorder of sorts. But it, this had a, a five-pin, so but it was used for like a, a different cassette recorder, huh? Is that what you guys were yeah, thinking? Yeah, I, I came across that looking for cheap cassette cable alternatives for the Coco. Okay. And it, it was for a tape recorder of some sort. Okay. But I remember it because it was so close to what I wanted, but just yeah, not but the, quite. The six <laughs> is not going to fit in the Coco. Uh, right. But that was what I was looking for. And I ran across this. And, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I just yeah, wasn't it's sure. Got that, that middle pin would indicate it's not for a Coco uh, one or two. Right. Yeah, I yeah, have one that has five pins, but nothing in the middle. Okay. It was in with some box of. It was in with the box of some other stuff, and it's like, hmm, I wasn't sure. I, would, so I thought maybe I would uh, bring it up here on the show, and maybe someone might recognize it. So, in the in the chat, Paul Fiscarelli says digitizing cable for the joystick port. Oh, cool. Yeah, there was. I forgot about that. There was some digitizing programs that used the uh, six bit analog to record sound on the Coco. Oh, interesting. Yeah, don't throw it away. Uh, right. Yeah, like you wouldn't need. need um, you'll definitely want to do. A, a pinout probe, see what those three pins are connected to. Right, if they would go to the X or the Y of the uh, of the joystick. Yep. Pinout probe. Yep. 
Okay, I will do that. Okay, and then lastly, what I wanted to wanted to show you guys. Um, so a few weeks back, I showed that uh, that Color Computer Two kit. Yeah, that was disassembled. You put, you put it all together. I put it all together. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I did not put it together. There, that, that I don't know if you great. guys. I don't know if you guys saw some of the comments on Facebook. There was uh, quite a quite a response on Facebook. People really, uh, really seemed to um, uh, to enjoy that. Is that a so, T one? What's that? Is that a T one Coco two right there? Yeah, this here, this here is a. I, I, I want. I did want to share this though, but I thought maybe I'd make a little bit of a joke out of it. So yeah, this is a uh, a thirty one twenty seven B. Yeah, I got one of those. Um, and it was in the it was in the box. I know this probably isn't. Let's see here if I can. Is that a a genuine uh, uh, badge on the front? That yes, something. Yep, yep that's something what they different did. about it. Yeah, it's instead of Radio Shack, it's that's candy. a Coco Two B style one. It's got Two candy B. and. So Can this one here, yeah, I had the box with it. it. It had all the all the foam. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the let me grab the rest of it here. So I mean, it was all in really good shape. I mean, the manuals were in the bag. I'm not even sure if this was even had been used yet. Yeah. Let's see oh, the box. And it matches the true test of quality. The RF can is still shiny inside the cocoa. Yep. <laughs> it's still, yes. It's not rusted and, and it's not and vertical. It's horizontal. So low and, humidity uh, environment. That means it's a US version. So there's your uh, the video cable. Or yeah. Korean version. And uh let's okay. see here. Let me stretch just a minute. So and the stick? and the box is a little faded, but overall it was in great shape. But yeah, again, yeah. it was kind of weird <laughs> is that now this does have the matching serial number. It has the right part number on the side, but it but shows like, melted keys. But it shows the melted <laughs> keys, which we we kind of talked about that. You know, where it's like yeah. Raider Shack had like a you know twenty pallets of boxes, and it's like, well, we need to use these up before we start making new boxes or right. something. But right. uh, but it, it has the right uh, the right serial number on the back and the right uh, part number. I know I'm kind of not showing that very well, but the box was in good shape. So I just wanted to, this one was in such nice shape and everything. I just wanted to kind of get that one to add to my collection as far as a, a boxed system goes. Yeah. When you turn that on and put it up on the screen, you're not going to get any yellow on the side. Okay. Because it's, you know, looks brand new. So really good shape. But uh, I thought you guys might get a little laugh out if I said I actually assembled that one thing there. There was a lot yeah. of people, there was a lot yeah. of comments. There was people thought it'd make a good video to assemble it and everything. And, um, and I appreciate that. Um, but with the history of that kit and everything, it's not going to get assembled. And at yeah. the end of the day, you're just ending up with a Coco two, which, uh, there's now hold on there for a second while mm -hmm. you got that there. Does anybody know what that, uh, punch out looks like that punch out things for over there in the corner? Power power cable. Cable. Corner yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. No. What is that for? It's for a power cable. It already has one. <laughs> Gotta be the uh, AC cord. Yeah, maybe one for uh, Europe or something. Yeah, where the uh, ground, where would it came out of the bottom there? And have we ever seen one that's used on a Coco One? I have. This is a two, right? Yeah. I've never seen one on a Coco One, Coco Two being used. Right, I'd like to see one that's used. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if you're right. To, if maybe it was used in like the UK or something. Well, if, if you, you were the mold costs so much, you're going to go on and do anything you can think of in yeah. the mold. And then hey, if you don't need it, you don't need it. Brian, you have a lot of Cocoa twos, I would assume. Have you ever seen one that's used a cord out of there? You know, not that I've not that I recall. The right angle. No, nope, I have neither. Nope. Maybe that was an option for, you know, uh, 
you know, maybe they video, never ever video, use it. video yeah. out there. So, but I just wanted to share that with you. It was a nice, clean, uh, yeah, nearly nice. new, uh, nearly new cocoa. So, under a thousand for that one, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, but uh, no, that's all I wanted to share today. I mean, you guys might enjoy the keyboard tour. All right. Speaking Brian of Weasley, keyboard tour, Brian. Well, good. Brian Weasler's uh, retirement plan is looking healthy and active. <laughs> Before we go on to our next presentation, I thought I'd show the uh, the Micron Micronics ads for both the keyboard that you showed there, plus their sequel. So actually, while you guys were showing stuff off here, I actually found them on the archive. So just a sec, share. <clears throat> well, it almost looks like a black computer, don't it? Uh, oh, okay, Micronics. Yeah, it's Micronics. not the best scan, but okay. So yeah, the Micronics. Okay, that was the last keyboard that I showed. Well, now yeah, I you can see on the on the right here. I don't know if you can see the mouse cursor I've got here, but you can see the F1, F2, F3, F4 all clamored around the return key instead of the enter key, etc. So that's the version you just showed, which is the one that came out within late '82, early '83, I believe. And then the sequel one where they kind of moved around was called the Premium Keyboard. And that actually shifted some stuff around, like the arrows are where they're supposed to be, and the F keys are way over here away from the, the critical ones that everybody is used to being in a certain spot. Unfortunately, I can't zoom the scan up because the, the scan's pretty crappy, but yeah, that, that was two made by the same company about six months apart. Micronics. Okay. Josie. But yeah, small keyboard with a big filler plate around it to make it fit. I, I'm kind of uh, happy about the positioning of that computer right now. Yeah, we all understand. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about Alps key switches. That's actually what this uses here. Okay. I'm buy yep. one. Same as the Dragon. Because and here is the software enhancer. I don't. Know, did you get the keyboard utility with it too, uh, Brian? Um, I I might have that. I I just had these all. Uh, I had these all bubble wrapped in a box. I kind of been keeping my keyboards together. Um, but I don't know if I have the utility though. But I think I. Did see it on the archive, if I remember right. I can't remember. Yeah, because I mentioned the VersaKey software here adds auto key repeat, end key rollover, and type head. F1 becomes define, F4 becomes control. And you can come, you can actually create macros of up to 80 characters each using the keyboard driver. So. Oh, very cool. Josie's a grandmother now. Right? <laughs> yeah, I thought about sharing some of these on Facebook and uh, and then encouraging other people to, uh, to post pictures of other ones that they have. Because, I, I mean, obviously we, we're... What Curtis just showed there, there are other keyboards that are out there that were made, and uh, just just see if people might have some other ones to share. Have My favorite guys... keyboard hack still has got to be the uh, one in Color Computer News, nineteen eighty two. It was a Model Three keyboard with a mirror keypad, and you actually had to cut the black surround on the Cocoa One case top half hmm. to get it to fit. But you had a full keyboard in there with a numeric keypad. Oh wow, nice. nice. Oh, sorry, I interrupted somebody else there. Yeah, I, I can't remember, but um, I was looking at uh, white melted keyboards, and there seems to be a keyboard that I saw recently on somebody's site. I don't even know if it was on uh, the Coco Group, but um, the keyboard was shaped a little different than melted, but it was the same profile. You know, not not really the tall one. Not a full like travel like the later yeah. Coco Two. Have you ever seen those, you guys? It, it's kind of they're I... kind of U shaped. Um, only after a fire. No. <laughs> Maybe it's just a regular keyboard, but really melted because somebody left it on the dash in their car or something. I don't. Know. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen. Uh, mind you, if it's fairly subtly different, maybe I just didn't notice. 
Yeah. I, you know what? Sometime I'll uh, grab it and put it next to a, a regular melted one to see if anybody has ever noticed. Because it's it's another keyboard that I'm not aware of. <laughs> I mean, it's not like uh, Raider Shack Lois bid those things. <laughs> uh, let's see. Next up, uh, let's see. I had Tim on my list. Hey, everybody. So let me share my screen. Where's my thingy? Okay. I wanted to show something that I, well, you know, I, I don't know about all of you guys, but I love the updates page for. Oh, you're breaking up. Tim. Wow. I thought it was me. He <laughs> fell off. He fell off the uh, continental plate there. Okay. He's always, uh, Guillaume is always adding stuff and test. Uh, how about now? Yeah, we can hear you can now. You hear oh, better now. Oh, I'm sorry. Not really doing anything different. Can you totally you see? siloned. <laughs> well, I wanted to show off this uh, color computer to the prospective rainbow contributor. I hadn't seen this before. It came across my desk a few months ago. I scanned it and sent it up to the archive. But if you were wanting to write an article for the Rainbow, um, you would send off uh, for some information from the company about how they wanted you to submit the, the article. And, and uh, I just think this is a fascinating document that um, everybody should take a look at. I'm trying to remember if I got one of these when I submitted programs for the two contests that I placed in, because I think they sent this with the, you know, we accepted your entry thing. I'll have to check. I don't remember. That's all. So did you send it in? Yep, it's on the archive right now. You can see it on the the, the front page where uh, he lists uh, new stuff to be viewed. Now, question for you, cool. Tim. I also noticed they had the 80 micro, the same thing, basically the uh, contribution guidelines for the 80 micro. Was that you too or is that somebody else? I sent that in as well. Um uh, basically, I got a collection from a guy, and uh, apparently he wanted to write magazine articles. And so he sent off for both of these um, info sheets. Do you know if he ever did get published? No, I don't believe he did. No, I thought you knew by somebody famous then. Never mind. No, no it wasn't It wasn't somebody <laughs> famous. That's one of them is Marty, but Marty would have been writing way before that already. Oh, Yeah. Obviously, we were you know we're all encouraged to go out and read it. But was there anything that that jumped out at you when you read it that you thought was kind of unusual from a formatting perspective? Or yeah, they wanted bug free programs. I don't know what the heck they were smoking. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a bit in the eighty micros where it says, "Please send in your bug free programs." Uh, but you know, things things that I think are interesting is uh, they if if the program is longer than ten lines, you have to submit it on disk or tape. They they do not want to type in programs. Yeah, so so, so there went my thirty two k graphic adventure game. I was going to send them. <laughs> Thank you. First, out your dot matrix forms too. What was that? They make you burst out your dot matrix forms too. So you have to take off the dots and split the pages and tractor feeds, double space your lines. I do you. like the, I do like the set that the sentence are in the middle there where it, it talks about, you know, uh, using the good old kiss adage there to, you know, keep it simple, stupid applies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that tells you what they thought of their people. Yeah. So everybody yeah. should, uh, you know, 
always keep an eye on the the front page to the Coca Archive. There's always cool stuff showing up. Yes. Yeah, now so we should, we should forward these off to Glenn's side so they can actually you know make a guideline for submitting stuff to the GCC newsletter. There you go. <laughs> it's, it says on there uh, no self. Um, what do they call it when the program Mission? writes itself? No self-modifying self code. Oh. <laughs> Does it really uh, say that? No. no. Oh. Didn't you read it all? No, I haven't read it all. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you find out. <laughs> I've, I've actually, I've actually been um, working on some copy protection um, schemes, and I've, I've come across some self-modifying code recently. And uh, so I thought that was an, that would be an interesting. <laughs> So just before the uh, article went away, I caught the line uh, asking, uh, uh, no bugs, please. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but that's part of the learning experience. Didn't Rainbow want you to learn? You mean we couldn't get Rainbow to actually debug our programs for us? They wouldn't no, there was a company that advertised to do that, though. That was their whole scheme. They You'd send in your buggy programs. Other people send in the buggy programs. You exchange tapes. They that was advertised for about a good year. <laughs> But they wouldn't take Megabug then. Uh, see what he did there? <laughs> well, especially after spider attack happened. But <laughs> then the spider side. But yeah, there was a, I'm trying to remember the name of the company, but it was, it had a half page ad and it said bugs in big bold letters and then explained the whole scheme where you would just exchange programs and basically. The scheme was that you know all these other programmers take a look, fresh look of eyes on your your code, figure out your bugs for you. You would do the same for them. And then everybody would be able to sell these bug free programs and make tons of money. That was the whole thing. I don't think I ever saw one thing sold by them. It was a good idea. It was innovative. I mean, that was the early '80s. That was the Wild West. Like that's Coco One and One Days before the Coco Two and Three. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of interesting things that people were trying. I mean, some things stuck, some things didn't. Obviously, but. Uh, that would, that would have been pretty a, fa a fascinating thing to see if it actually had worked. Oh, I was going to ask Tim, too, um, considering this, the new STC updates we're we'll getting into the news, have you made a new version of the manual to cover that, too? Or? Yeah, uh, it's posted on the Blogspot, uh, on Darren's Blogspot page, and it's also on the Color Computer Archive. I was going to mention it when you got to the news item. Okay. Well, we'll go in detail. I just, uh, I just wanted to catch up for I forgot to ask you. Didn't Rainbow have the one-liners? One and two-liners, yes. Yeah, I, I always wanted to send something in that actually didn't mean anything. And then see, you know, take a look. Who caught it? <laughs> and they, the nice thing, Ron, is you wouldn't have to send in a tape or disc because it was less than 10 lines, so you, you can make them tight. There you go. <laughs> Ron, don't, don't poke the Lonnie. Nothing good, nothing good will happen. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of Ron, we have oh. a... Okay. Oh, man, cut it short. Oh, okay. <laughs> I could have let it go on longer, but yeah. all right. So I have to slide over because it's on the other side of the room here. Just like Ron itself, it was long enough. Can you see it? <laughs> Am I up? Yes, I yep. see a Ghostbusters. Okay. Do you guys remember that? Yes. Back in the day? That was by uh what was the guy's name? Fred Skirbo? Yeah. And the thing is, uh, <clears throat> Doesn't matter how many times you play it, it still did the same thing. 
It didn't change. <laughs> and the kids would love to watch it be created because it, you know, it doesn't. Yeah, he did a movie theme one. He did a couple of rock fest ones where he did rock logos. I actually stole a couple of his and actually animated them to go along with the tape with motor on audio on to play along my own yeah. crappy music video. Pretty cool. So let's see what else. This is what I wanted to show. This uh, ultra compact, minimalistic 6809 computer on a keychain. Nice. Sure, wasn't there talk of doing something like this at the fest as your badge at one point? Oh, that would <laughs> yeah, be cool. There was. Yeah. But wh why do they call it minimalistic? Because it doesn't, all it has is like a port for the screen. Uh, uh, I don't know. I didn't read it. There it is. Interesting, huh? Tiny. Not enough room for a keyboard. Yeah. Look at that. There's another one. That's even too small for an MC10 keyboard. Yeah. Have a, have a real time clock. Got a USB socket. <laughs> what else do you need? <laughs> yeah, really. That's true. That's true. Okay. What do I do now? Go back. No. Close, close this one and it'll go back to your, close this tab and you'll go back to your main I page. I don't. There's so much crap. Which tab very, is very, very top the tabs with the little X. There are the two tabs you got on the top. Over here? Yeah. No. Yeah, there. Yeah. Okay. Next. This is uh, $40,000. Why? I don't know. You see oh, it? Oh, it's 40500 now. Yeah. Actual paper. Cool. Does anybody know what this is? Can you zoom it up a bit there? Um Internet ready interactive radio shack catalog. I don't know anything about that. Like an internal document or something. Eh? Yeah, and um and hardcover bound? Yeah. There are some people out there that I've seen that are that back. are there are some people though that are taking catalogs and putting them into hardbound covers. I'm not sure if this is actually a real Radio Shack thing or if it's just something that people were doing, but this looks like maybe like it might be Radio Shack, but um, I've seen some stuff out there before that people just, they basically took it and put it into a book. Yeah. It says make offer. <laughs> right. I mean, what it's yeah. claiming well, here is that it's going to be electronic internet thing, isn't it? Am I reading yeah, that cover right? I just don't get that. Well, those look like your bog standard uh, catalog yeah. page. Right. Catalog yeah. in a binder. Right? So, but that, yeah. that cover was mentioning um, internet something or interactive mm -hmm. online or something like that. Yeah. This ain't that. This is just a catalog. What is that C thing? It looks like a, a musical thing, and then there's like a code. That was their QCAT. QCAT. Radio Shack yeah. had a barcode yeah. reader that plugged into your PS2 port. Oh, yeah. Everything so, back home. It was like the first and that, spyware. And that might yep. be what they mean by internet ready, because the Maybe idea was you that. could... You, well, the idea was that you could scan that barcode, Ooh. and it would take QCAT you out to the internet. Like a QR code today. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and the Q cats were interesting. They were plastic molded. They looked like a cat with a scanner coming out of the mouth. Oh, yeah, right. I've got yeah, one I, around here somewhere. It was really Yep. So the guy doesn't know what he has, does he? Didn't look like a cat to me. Yeah. But, but you a comment from a... Mark Siegel in the chat here says we all got hardbound covered catalogs as managers. Oh, huh. very nice. Oh. Okay. Cool. Well, I saw that it said printed by Bobby. Jackman well, presented, presented, to Bobby Jackman. Presented, 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 presented. Okay, I couldn't quite focus on yeah. that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, strange, huh? Well, that's cool, though. I don't know if it's worth 40 grand, though. 
No. <laughs> Unless you are Bobby Jackman. Maybe you should get the whole store for that price. This John guy posted to my uh, thing here and put this Christine up that he, he you know, did by software. And I thought it was pretty cool. He had to work pretty hard on that one. Yeah, this reminds me of Rainbow, and we kind of have a page in our Discord for that too. But uh, when Rainbow had the art gallery, I can't remember what they specifically called it, but they had these competitions that people could place. And then later on, they had a Cocoa 3 division for the higher color stuff. But people did some pretty amazing artwork in that stuff. Yeah, I did some uh, my usual artwork stuff. This is what he posted. He did Return of the Jedi here. And he did some animated ones too, didn't he? He had some video ones? Something. Ron, we just got to get you doing Ford Mustang stuff. That that would be preferred. No. <laughs> oh, wow. He turned on the echo for that. <laughs> Not that I'm biased or anything. It's going to do that noise. This kind of reminds me of that story we covered a couple months ago where that guy had dug out some of his old software from the 80s of doing all the Star Trek stuff. Animations and uh, little mini stories. This takes a while. This one here. I'm going to move it along. I don't know why it goes so long. I guess drawing in the background. Maybe. I think it's supposed to be playing music too, but you got it muted. Okay. Well, you'll have to go to Ron's garage and take a look. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did the Christine thing a while back. Just the logo of from the hood, you know. They took that V8 symbol from the hood. And I think that's from the movie or something. I don't know. I can't remember. Did a long time ago. There's a 399 cocoa, and we had a little discussion about, you know, whether it's a cocoa two, or whether it's a cocoa one with the white. It's a cocoa 164k. Yeah, and but in Australia, it's a cocoa two. Yeah. Weird. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I think Nick can verify that because I think he actually has one. So it's the defining thing that kink where it's it's a hard crisp line across the top of the upper deck there, if you will. Nah. And then the Cocoa 2 is rounded? Nope. Oh, no, it's a full-size Cocoa 1 case. Like, it's the full length, and a Cocoa 2 is quite shrunk. I think you're thinking of the, the this uh, TDP. Okay. That's smooth. The but, yeah, okay. 2 is not. Or 1. Like, if you color that silver, it looked like a Cocoa 1 is the same size. Right. And then um, there's my Black Beauty. <laughs> Back in the 90s, it was yellow. So I painted it black with uh, stove paint, and uh, it's lasted all this time without, uh, you know, there's a couple of little corners that are white, but um, it's lasted a long time. It's probably one of the first guys to ever do sacrilege and paint the uh, case. And then there's this one. Is that awesome or what? Uh, is that yours or is that uh, Terry Steggy's? That's Terry's. Yeah, with the with really the custom funny. custom keyboard that uh, yeah. Ed Snyder did, yeah, take a look at that baby. Well, he he didn't um, color in the keys, so you have to kind of look at an angle to see that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you gotta be able to type. Well, the thing yeah. is, Ed's keys are laser etched, and laser etching creates black. Well, if you yeah. already got black keys, <laughs> got black on black. It's kind of like that bit from Hitchhiker's Guide. 
Yeah, but you know, it would be cool. You have a black controller, right? A black drive for it, black monitor, black, black. mouse. Yeah, everything's really slick. Anyways, um, then I got this. Uh, I was thanked for something, and the guy put it in code, and I thought, wow, my name will live on in code. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remove my name from code so people don't blame me for all the bugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a uh, Corinthian leather Cordoba. And that's about it, guys. I did Tron. It's been a while since I've been on. I found this one. <laughs> this is a Jeep thing. If you turn it upside down and and flip it, you Jeep. get beer. Mm. <laughs> I thought that was funny. And it was my little grandson. That's it, guys. Stop share. Thanks. Been a while cool. since I've been on. Had a bit of catching up to do. Yeah. Anybody else have any presentations? Uh, Rick, you're probably just busy getting ready for the fest at this point, I'm imagining. Pretty much. Ken, yeah. you returned from a holiday, so I, I guess you dropped a video. I don't. It's not cocoa related, but. Ken oh. was looking real comfortable on his chair there. Yeah, geez, wake <laughs> me up. Thanks. <laughs> I was going to drop a video yesterday, but uh, my computer updated and crashed my editing <laughs> program and just about half the programs on my computer. So, I had a first, you know, for the first time in I think maybe years, I had a blue screen today, you know, where, where it has a smile face or an upside down smile oh, face. Right. Yeah. And it appeared and then it went away and then rebooted. And it's like it never happened or did it or did it? That's different. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. So I think it's just stringing you along at this point. <laughs> so shall, we, shall we do a commercial break? Sure, then we can get on the game on uh, results okay. after that. If we, ha we have to, and then we have a we have a visit from Grimes today. Ooh, okay. So that's time to go wee wee. <laughs> okay, let's see. Where's my butts? Here we go. The Coco Nation Show is an unscripted, live, and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own, and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation Show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged, and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation. The Coco Nation Show would like to thank the following patrons. Alex Gayer, Brendan Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Kieran Inscombe, Daddy Burrito, Diego BF109, Dinty's Hideaway, Don Barber, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Mike Rayburn, Patrick Euland, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Alan Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, Terry Stege, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., Tony C., William Mathing. Thank you so much, patrons.
again. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Geim. I want to shoot all the bad enemies. Won't ask them questions, don't care about answers. Show my shot and show them it. What's the word? Burns. When it's the end, wouldn't I love, love to destroy that Zeppelin above? Out of the sky, they know that I destroyed their world. <laughs> I honestly didn't think his singing talents could get any worse, but I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I see Ron took off before. Yeah, that Ron, started. you timed that perfectly. <laughs> okay. Auto tune? What's that? <laughs> Auto detune in this case. Welcome, everybody, to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played Ariel. We had a total of 14 players. Exile in Paradise, 2,800. Mark B, 3,000. Canadian Retro Things, 6,000. Coco Man, 7,600. Sloopy Malibu, 7,850. Ed Rhodes, 8,500. Sabhead, 8,600. Jim Rye, 16,500. Rich N, 17,050. Mr. Dave, 6309, 20,400. Shanley, 30,150. L. Curtis Boyle, 41,250. Tasman, 61,250. And the number one score this week was Buck Owens with 86,150 scored on an MC10. Wow. Thanks, everybody that played, and we'll see you again next week. The Coco Nation salutes Buck Owens. Well, there we go. Buck definitely won that one quite soundly. So he, he played this on a real MC10 with an MC10 keyboard or on an emulator? On a real MC10 with an MC10 keyboard. Oh, I have made the comment that. Trying to use that uh, keyboard to <laughs> control he aerial. He the comment that even though there are keys marked with arrows, it doesn't mean that they're good to play with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. I wouldn't have attempted that. And the photo he posted was the TV screen with his MC10 right there, so... You know what's scary is if you would have played on a regular Coco, you might have had a higher score. Yeah. Oh, probably. <laughs> how, how many people played the Coco 1 and 2 version? How many played the Coco 3, or do you know, Ken? Uh, people weren't saying that, so. Um, I know in the live stream, I was playing the Coco 3 one, but most, I think, were playing the Coco 1 and 2. Yeah, I was playing the Coco 3 myself. Well, you and but, Sloopy snuck in a couple other platforms, too. Yeah, so. Sloopy uh, snuck in the Atari version, and I snuck in the ColecoVision version. 
Because of course, now, did you this find those an, easier or harder to control than the Coco one? Well, definitely the ColecoVision one was easier because it plays with the joystick. So, oh, we we should mention Mr. Dave's little patch too. There. Yeah, and Mr. Dave had a patch to play with the joystick, which I didn't actually find out about until after the show last night or two nights ago. So I didn't actually get to try it, but. Yeah, I think he only patched the Coco One Two version though. I don't think he patched oh, okay. the Coco Three version. So, but uh, yeah, of course, this is uh, one of those Inafuto games, which is available on a number of different systems. So, uh, over sixty, last time I checked, including the yeah. Tier City Model One and Three. Yep. So, oh, obviously, it's a new game, so there's no uh, reviews of it or anything like that, other than. I have seen a few people play the, these games in uh, on various systems in different Twitch streams and stuff, and generally they're all quite impressed with them and they enjoy playing them. So, yeah, considering it's a generic um, cross-platform system, I think he, they call it Kate C A T A. I can't remember what that stands for. Something like but that. Yeah, kind of like a tile-based uh, C compiled type thing, kind of like CMOC, I guess except for cross-platform, and uh, it does use the hardware to its advantage, so if you have sprite chips, it'll use them. If you have a sound chip, it'll use that for multi-voice, etc. Mm-hmm. On the Coco, they didn't bother trying to write some background IRQ routine or something, so you basically get single voice. Yeah, it's basically know, the lowest common denominator of each system. Yeah. On the Coco 3, at least, we got the 16 colors. It actually it doesn't use 320, though. I think it uses 256. I think he did that mainly to get it to fit in a memory user. So he does 256 by 192 16 color, which is about 24K, which leaves you know a fair bit of room for the program and its assets. Anyways, uh, for those of you that didn't play it, it's basically just a game where you're flying and you've got uh, different uh, airplanes coming at you from the front and behind and cannons below you firing at you and you just have to blow everything up. Yeah, missiles launch at you. You can get free men, little power-ups you can... Yeah, there's uh, rockets that uh, shoot up in front of you, and if you shoot them, sometimes they'll give you a free man while they're yeah. in the air. And as bosses, um, yeah. which are these big you know, dirigible Zeppelin blimp type things, and as you progress further in levels, you get more and more of them. I, I got up to the point where you have four at once. I think I saw some video, was it Bucks, that was up to six at once or something? Uh, when I was playing on the ColecoVision, I got up to uh, one that had six. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, my score on the ColecoVision was much, much, much higher than my Coco 3 score. <laughs> I did like the flight mechanics, like the way you could you could you could change your speed when you're dive bombing down so you could actually go ahead straight down at an angle mm-hmm. or or pull back a bit so you can actually like strafe the bottom to get rid of the missile launchers and the cannons and stuff. And yeah, I mean for a tile-based you... game, it actually probably is pretty darn good, I have to say. It gave you eight direction movement and so playing on the keyboard if you just held held down two keys you'd go diagonally like down and forward you would go diagonally forward yeah no i was i was quite impressed that's actually out of the interview ones i've tried so far i think that's probably my favorite one so far it is a good one played that well it's not like you know right home super smooth graphics or anything like that but it, it, it plays well and uh, the ramping up of difficulty is gradual enough that you can improve as you go. You start getting more planes coming from behind. So if you're sweeping left to avoid the ones in front, you might just get ran into. Or... And they do start shooting at you more and more the higher level you get up. So, yeah. And uh, they will shoot diagonally or in front of you or in front or diagonally up at you. 
And then timing when you get to the boss stage, like after you have more than one boss, one boss is actually a kind of a safe zone at the very top. You can just hammer on it. But once you start getting the multiple levels of them vertically, then you have to start dodging all the shots as they're coming in. So mm-hmm. I quite I quite liked it. Good. So did anybody else play this on the panel here? Anybody? Anybody? David Lab, did you? I did. What'd you think, Mark? <clears throat> um yeah, I mean I can control it pretty well. Still didn't get past level one. Did did you try it with the uh, joystick patch from Mr. Dave, or did you just play the keyboard controls? Just the keyboard controls. So I didn't think about doing the two keys at once, though. <laughs> yeah, it makes it a lot easier if you yes. do the two keys at once because then you can fly in Dang, over top man. of like the uh, cannons and stuff and. Come at the, it's like uh, it's like having a car with more than one gear. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Cars have gears. Who knew? <sighs> oh, I quite liked it. That's um, we've we've covered how many of the Interfuter games now? This is just I think two? just the second one we've done. <clears throat> and I, I definitely ranked it a little bit better than that one for me personally. I, I prefer yeah. the flying game. It's kind of like a loosely based on Scramble. I guess is probably the closest. Yeah. The first one we played was loosely based on Mappy. Yeah. And then this one's loosely based on Scramble. So. But it's nice because, I mean, <clears throat> it's nice to see that, you know, a cross-platform engine came out with 11 games the last couple of years for the Coco 3. But the fact that it's coming up for even more obscure systems like the MC-10, I mean, that's the probably the biggest single author besides Jim Gary of, uh, you know, games for the MC-10. And these are all high-res games, you know, with some, you know, compiled assembly language not raw assembly but um i now that jim's starting to use uh greg dion's compiler we'll start seeing more stuff i think from him that is a bit more arcade quality but i don't think he's done too much with the higher res screens on the mc10 so this is kind of nice having a, a whole library basically over overnight mm-hmm. so does anybody have any well obviously just a couple of us played it but uh for tips and tricks of playing the game Definitely. Um, my tip uh, is on the blimps, like on the on the the boss stage. The um, if you go right to the very top of the screen, any blimp on the top row can't hit you. Yeah, they can only Their fire up diagonally or and over straight top in front of them. You. Yeah, so that's one thing. So basically, if you can ca- take care of the blimps lower than that, if you have like three or four or five or six, first by doing the dodging round, you can kind of relax and just shoot up to the top and just start. Well, even on the space. on the multiple ones, you can always find a spot where they can't shoot you. Yeah, yeah. If you if you place yourself vertically, just just right. Yeah. As long as you take care of the other things that are like, if there's any ground based guns still around, they can still shoot at you too. So you have to kind of clear them up first. Yeah. And then you try to find the secret spots or safe spots, I should say, for the the blimps. And definitely, the diagonal movement helps a lot. Mark. Yeah. There's there's a big tip for Mark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Makes it a heck of a lot easier. But good now, to know that Thursday. <laughs> um, Ken, uh, you said you did not play the joystick version, and obviously Mark didn't either. I didn't either, to be honest. Um, I did play, not during the stream, but I did play the Coco 1 and 2 version versus the Coco 3 version. I didn't really notice any big difference in the controls. Just the graphics look better because it's more colorful. Did you notice any difference? I didn't try the Coco 1 and 2 version. I've been kind of getting settled back in this week, so... And Mark, did you try both versions or just the Coco 1, 2, or just the Coco 3 version? Uh, I did both. Uh, the week before, I did the Coco 2 version, 
where I got my high score. Uh, okay. The Cocoa 3 version to me seemed a little slower, probably because it had higher resolution graphics. Yeah, yeah, the screen's literally three times the size and only double the speed of the Cocoa, so that would make sense. Well, let's take a look at some of our footage from uh, Thursday night. Oh, there's that really irritating game on the screen, too. Yes, that was our other game of the week, which is, um, you know, the Nick Morenti's game. Yeah, and you oh, can see uh, Jason, the Coco Man, got confused. He thought they said Nutroid, not Nutroid. So yeah. he's playing his brother's game. <laughs> now, um, during the stream, we did have some uh, definitely comments about uh, Nutroid from people. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. I, I didn't dislike it as much as some people. I mean, it, it's a hard game and uh, takes some getting used to. Requires skill. See, that's that's why I had so much trouble with it. It requires a proper gameplay, too. That's one other thing it could use. But, uh, yeah. Now, Nick, so. we, we were kind of discussing the pre-show. We're going to wait till this, this segment to talk about it. I think the concept behind Neutro 2 is good. Um, the only issue I have is that there's a couple things that are kind of against the player. And I think the fact that there's two things that are cut against them, it should have been just one, and you could pick which one you wanted to keep or not. Um, one is the um, inability to reverse direction. You have to just do 90 returns. Yeah, that would make it easy then. It would make it really easy. Because yeah. if you miss the dot, you would just then reverse and get it. Yeah. And I'm trying to. What was the other one? Can we discuss the other one that you didn't like? You wanted you wanted to be able to stop. Yeah, that would make easy 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 yeah. too. One one or two, like don't do both of those. That's that's but too easy. If you put either of those in, I think the game would just become way. Too yeah, easy. it becomes too easy. Yeah, yeah. Now the whole idea was was you're not you're not actually directly controlling the neutroid. It's an atomic particle. It's just free free flowing. You're controlling some magnetic influence to to steer it so you can't just stop it or go left or reverse or whatever you're not directly controlling it i, I understand the uh <clears throat> the flimsy science it. behind it um <laughs> 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 that wasn't my complaint the background well, story the is, is fine it just control wise it, 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 it gets to be with both of those against you that it, it gets to be a bit much, and it just I, – I didn't find it fun. I found it frustrating. Well, like Even I said, when I got to the second skill. level, it was like, yeah, so what? It does take skill. <laughs> <laughs> so you keep telling me. Yet he refused right. to come on and play it to show us skill. But <laughs> I have played it. I just haven't had time lately. I wanted to play it. It's been a while since I played it. And let's not forget that uh, programs are often not the best players of games. Their own wow. games are usually pretty good. If you want to see skill, wait until Buck Owens puts a um, a video up. I will say Sloop is a huge fan of this game. Yeah. Yeah. But As there's no said, accounting a, for people's It's a timing taste. game. Yeah, partly timing, but also, like I said, the fact that you, you if you try to turn and you just catch it at the wrong part, it just 
cascades into the wall. And it, it felt like there was, wasn't was enough leeway for the player, I guess. It would be like Pac-Man with dip switches on the worst setting type thing. It's kind of what it felt like to me. It felt like the difficulty started a bit too much at the beginning. And it kind of dissuades a player from wanting to bother to try to get better at it. That's what I was feeling. That's why I switched back to Aerial after a bit. Well, actually, the original one, the Neutroid 2 original, was even harder, really. Um, and this uh, Neutroid 2015, I did make it a bit easier. Maybe that's why I finally made it to level two for the first time yeah, ever. Two, I did play two back is pretty in the old lame. Days, like, two is pretty lame still, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, this this was my very first Coco um, Coco game. Yeah, I and I mean, created. one thing I did mention that the graphics, the sounds, awesome on it for a Coco One and Two game at the time because you were with us in what eighty four. Eighty four. Well, I mean, I I had a my first computer was a Model One TRS eighty. So along the way, um, I was uh, you know uh, creating games and Neutroid, the original Neutroid, I wrote for the Model One. And uh, so when I actually moved to a Coco back in 84, I decided to do Neutroid. But because of the semi-graphics modes and things, uh, I couldn't quite do it exactly. I mean, you had to follow the rules by which how semi-graphics works. So I decided to change the game a bit as well. So hence I called it Neutroid 2. Um, and then... Um, 2015 is just a uh, a fix up or a uh, yeah, main, mainly to get the grab the score and stuff to be seen. Well, on the, the, the main thing was yeah because it was it wouldn't work on a Coco three, um, and uh, I just fixed that. But the the thing is when I when I did get the Coco two or Coco well, it was a Coco. My first Coco was a Coco two. Um, the thing I. I was reluctant to go to the Coco 2 anyway. Uh, from the TRS-80, I was looking at all these other machines because by 1984, the Coco looked a, a bit antique to me. You know, the the graphics yeah. and everything just really, compared to what else was out there, the Commodore Yeah, because by that time, the Commodore 64 had already been out yeah, for a couple there years. Was, so. Most other computers were more colorful. And we had this color computer. Uh, and really, the, the worst thing about it was color. It didn't really because remember, P mode four on PAL over here in the, in uh, in Australia was black and white. There was no color. So, you know, all these games that you saw ads for, uh, Sailor Man and Zaxxon and all that with the the the, the blue and the red in the in the colors. Yeah, just like little stripes of gray. Of they white. were terrible. They were yeah, that was smudge. So the last thing the color computer was to me was color. Color it just lacked. But the color computer had, um, well, there was two things I liked about it at the time. One was it had a much better basic than what the Commodore 64 had. Uh, it was a very good basic, and and yeah. I was very, very impressed with that compared to most other machines at the time. And two, from a game designer point of view, it had a very good distribution outlet in that back then, I think uh, the rad, uh, Tandy stores or Radio Shack stores, there was about, I think at that time, around 500 to 600 stores Australia-wide. 
And I thought, well, any game I write on a Coco would straight away go to 600 stores. And I thought that's a, that, that was a big bonus. Whereas the Commodore 64 or whatever other one, there were dealers everywhere. And there were certainly not 600 dealers. So I thought, well, that's a big advantage in the color computers. Um, for the color computer, the only thing is I just hated the color. So when I when I sat down to write a game, my first game on the color computer, I said it had to be colorful and it had to sound good because, of course, there was no sound chip. And the, a program I did see that Tandy was selling was uh, Steve Bjorg's Spectrum Analyzer, which uh, was uh, semi-graphics. And that was the first time I'd seen semi-graphics mode. And it was colorful and it looked a bit more high res And I thought, gee, if the color computer can do this, why aren't more games using this mode? I hadn't seen all, any other ones at the time. I was, it, was, it was only the um, Spectrum Analyzer was the first one I saw. So I decided I'm going to write a, uh, a semi-graphics-based game for the Coco 1 and 2 that shows eight colors on a back, black background and while I was at it, since I, I, I've been doing one-bit sound on a, a Tiro Sadie, and I was pretty good at, at, at making sound effects on that, I thought with a Coco with a six-bit sound, I might be able to do a bit better. So I, I wanted to really have a lot of sound. Um, and that's what, that's what, that was the, um, um, what I aimed for in Neutroid. And uh, I think for the, for the most part, uh, I was quite happy with it. It is a very noisy game. It's got some pretty good sound effects, and uh, it's very colourful. Now, the game was a bit abstract, though. Uh, I thought it was good, and there were a few <laughs> arcade arcade machines, like actual arcade machines that used that whole atomic-type idea. I think the arcade reactoid um, in the arcades had come out, and that was also colourful and lots of sound. I said... I want a game that was like that, a nuclear idea with lots of color and lots of explosive uh, sound, and that's what Neutroid was. Uh, that's how I. That's what I um, aimed it to be, and I think it, I pulled it off. But it is a more ab abstract game. So I remember uh, when I did release it, I. Um, um, at that time, Tandy weren't taking people's programs, so I had to sell it myself. So what I did was um, I, I paid uh, for a half-page ad in the local Australian Coco magazine, and I've actually got that ad here. I'll just show it. I'll stop um, sharing, and you can show that. Yeah, you'll have, you'll have to stop sharing, and I'll, I'll share mine. There we go. I'll, okay, and that should be coming up now. So that was the ad I put up for the uh, Australian Coco magazine. So, uh, of course, there was no desktop publishing or anything. This was all using cut and paste, um, you know, cutting graphics out from magazines and sticking them all together, putting them on on paper. Uh, and the uh, the black bit there was just a black spray can. I just tried to get creative, and I'm, I I made that effect with a black spray can and that was the ad. I thought, oh, yeah, that's a pretty impressive ad. 
So I put it in the Australian Cocoa, uh, paid for the half-page ad, sold it for $19.95 Australian at the time, but it sold zero. I didn't sell any copies, so that was a complete write-off. Um, how, how, how did selling go on the uh, Model 1 3 version? It was it was good. It, it sold better on the Model 1 3. Um, well, have to. It had, if it sold at least one. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, like, yeah, did you yeah. sell dozens or tens or five? Oh, or? I, I can't remember. It wasn't – I mean, back in those days, I was still in high school. I was a – I was a, a school kid way back then, so this was all pocket money for me. Um, okay. But it, it it sold more than zero, so <laughs> which on the cocoa I was I was really drumming up to you know um, make a big splash with Neutroid two, but it made zero, nothing, and it was really after that I was going to say, well, cocoa was was a bad choice, time to move on, and I started looking for something else. But then, I don't know, I just got a change of heart because I was a Tandy man all, all those years. I, I was a, a Christmas casual uh, for Tandy for a while, so I'm, I was familiar with the store. I was familiar with the TRS-80 Model 1. I used to hang out at the, at the Tandy stores. That's where I learned uh, about the TRS-80 and then bought my own, did a lot of work on that. So I was always a, I always had that. I was always a Tandy man, so I wanted to go back to the cocoa, but I thought, there, look, there's no market there, not in Australia. I know there was in, a, in America because I saw all the ads in the Rainbow magazine, but I thought Australia is just nothing for the, for the cocoa. Nick, was this ad yeah. black and white in the color magazine? No, no, the, the pages were black and white. Oh, okay. Because I was going to yeah, say was- that, that would have killed it right there because – it does say on the left there, eight color high res graphics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So I was pushing that the game did actually have color, um, but yeah, the magazine was all just black and white anyway. Okay. So that that's all right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that was all right. But anyway, without going on to, from there and explaining how I got into Donut Dilemma, which completely changed uh, my outlook on the cocoa. Um, the well, Neutroid you too. You, you know what the problem is? You can't eat a Neutroid. No, no, no. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was an abstract game idea. You know, you have atomic particles and the grid and the way it moved, and you know, it did require intelligence. And I think that's where Curtis fails. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Nick, I've got a response to that, uh, Scott Cooper, and I said basically the same thing during the stream. The easiest way to play Neutroid is to let it play by itself. And several people I, just let it can. run on its own, didn't touch anything, and they actually got better scores than they were it trying to play. That's a fatal flaw in gameplay if that's happening. Well, no, that shows you how damn easy it is. So when someone says it's <laughs> too hard, you say, well, you you must be really bad. <laughs> I do have to uh, say that I tried that uh, thing, and I could not beat my top score of just letting it play. So, uh, Yeah, you've got to be lucky. It's a case of... Uh, getting it timed right so it bounces up and down between the two grids. But, uh, yeah, that doesn't last forever. It'll Eventually it'll miss. Um, but it, that was there for people who, you know, who uh, find it too hard. You can just let it bounce. But um, when you actually play it, I mean, back in the day, this was a keyboard-only game. And I was a, I was still in high school. I actually still had reflexes and some sort of, 
uh, finger dexterity and all that, <laughs> and I, I could play it. Now I, I just can't play it with the keyboard at all. Hence why I released Neutroid 2.015, which added joystick control, um, which made it a lot, lot easier to control. I added the ability to um, display the score in graphics modes so that it worked on a Coco 3 correctly. Um, so it was just a few little fixes I had to do, I decided to do to it. Because I really, I, I don't think the game is that bad as, as what Curtis is saying. I thought it was. No, the game itself is good. I actually did compliment you on the it's game a, design, the sound design, idea. the graphics. It's just the uh, the controls are a little bit too unforgiving the way it is now. Well, I think if you switch one of those two it, things, it would be much more playable. It's meant to be. You're meant to be controlling a nuclear reactor, so it's not really a particle. You don't actually control the nuclear particles. You control the reactor. So the reactor is the one that's creating the 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 magnetic fields which which guide it. Well, and, see, I'm going to call the, BS on that because I mean, if you've actually studied <laughs> what they do in atomic reactors, when they do the magnetic field to hold particles, you can't hold them still. That's what they do in the particle accelerator. Yeah, yeah, but uh, this is this is a um, a alternate reality um, uh, reactor. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the neutroid. Basically, yeah, the Curtis neutroid, just wants to be spoon fed the game so that he can get a that's good score. Right, yeah. I want a game that actually has the playability factor, you know, taken into consideration. And he did that with Donut Dilemma. His sequel was his best-selling game ever. So he did learn. Going to, yeah, well, I figured that Neutroid required a bit of a, a bit of an uh, understanding of a more abstract idea. Uh, And I figured, well, most people obviously don't have that. So I thought when I did. Well, zero people had it from your original sales. Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) Well, the thing is, they didn't buy it, not not based on the fact that they saw it and thought, oh, I don't like that game. They just read it and just didn't understand it. They they, they didn't understand what's the fun in um, it doesn't look exciting. It doesn't – you have an atomic particle. I mean, that sounds too too uh, cerebral for, for to be fun. So, hence with Donut Dilemma, I said, look, Everyone seems to like Mario and the little characters, and and everybody likes and donuts. That. So that was another plus. And, well, the, the the donuts was was uh, was there for other reasons, but but I decided you need something that's less abstract, and that's where Donut Dilemma came in, and that and that did succeed. But Neutroid was too abstract. Um, yeah, which, well, I mean, Donut Dilemma you, that was so good that Tandy sold it. You didn't have to try to sell it. Yeah, yourself. yeah. Well. Well, Tandy did sell it, yeah, and that was in uh, – well, they picked it up in 87, I think. So that was about three years later, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was good enough that they actually made it part of the Christmas bundle. Yeah, yeah. See, but I'd always hoped Neutroid being colorful and lots of sound was something that would stand out because up to that point, I hadn't really seen anything – well, not here in Australia anyway. I hadn't seen any game that was Yeah, you hadn't colorful, seen like Guardian or Protectors 2 fast. or Pack Attack or Cave seen Hunter. Guardian. Guardian's good, yeah. <laughs> Guardian's a definitely good one. Um, but over here, I hadn't seen that. And no one knew about those either. Um, and I just wanted something colorful, made a lot of noise, uh, and was fast because, you know, I was young then. I could actually, I could actually think faster. Um, I, I can say with Neutroid, we, it did make a lot of noise, but that was coming from the players swearing at the control system. I think yeah, well, Neutroid that was, was, uh, that was the market. second channel. 
There was two channel sound. There was one from the computer and two from the user. Yeah. <laughs> I was using both during the stream. I'll new, say that. Go ahead, if you go. remarketed Neutroid as a um, slightly different game where just say you're a donut and you're picking up sprinkles on the side of the uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, sell a million yeah. Could have been the, the prequel to Donut Dilemma then. Yeah. There you go. You're inside and of the donut think, making machine. Yeah. And if you think Neutroid 2 was uh, hard to control, Neutroid 1 was harder. It had a slightly, it was the same idea. You had a grid and you, and again, you controlled the grid, not the, the particle. But the way it, um, it uh, deflected the uh, particle was a little bit different. Uh, no, no, it was, it was still the same, but it looked a bit different. I, I, I did different graphics. Um, and it was a little bit more confusing on the Model 1, but, but uh, in the Model 2, on the, on the Coco, I did try to simplify it a bit, but yes, obviously still not enough. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, they, I think it was good training for you for getting like the sound and working with semi-graphics because the semi-graphics you came up with lately, because you're, you're back to trying to get the color and the color computer, uh, like Rally SG yeah. and pipes and stuff, actually are really good. I have no complaints about any of those. Those things are awesome. So well, I, I view it as a stepping I'll... stone. I don't think I've ever done a game that used, um, well, not the P mode four anyway, because. Well, you didn't well, we have P mode. You had P mode four black and white or, you know, hazy yeah, purple yeah. and green. Yeah, that's right. And, and also, uh, you always had that. You can never turn that blasted border off. So. Nick, the new version uh, 2.015, maybe if you re released it with. Uh, rubber gloves and changed you know in there and said that you must wear the rubber gloves to advance you know rubber gloves yeah would give yeah. Uh, you know latex gloves or something you know all right give them a different feel you know for the game it's not it's not that type of game no. <laughs> I thought you said it was done. Uh, no, we don't know what you're playing, Ron, but <laughs> oh, we're talking about yeah. the same game, aren't we? <laughs> you know, with x-rays and stuff shooting out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, again, it wasn't medical. It was uh, meant to be uh, the whole... No, um, I didn't say idea. to give give you to you know include KY jelly with it or anything. <laughs> so you're influencing the particle by influencing oh, the asparagus. Really? <laughs> Cucumber. <laughs> Not helping, Dave. But anyway. <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> so, so that's a story of Neutroid. Yeah. And it's still featured for another week yet, so. Yeah. So I might see if I can play it, because I, I do want to play it. I do remember playing it. I, I always found it challenging, because trying to get the, to get the, uh, oh, it's challenging, control right? the Neutroid. Well, I know the perfect oh, yeah, I, time that you could come and play it, Nick. You could come yeah, and play know, it on just, Thursday night with us. Thursday's the worst day. I can't. I can't get there. Well, on Nick, Thursday. in this case, because it is your game, even if you just pre-record, uh, yeah, like, I might play do with that. VC or something like that, well, and just send that up for us to you. Yeah, yeah I, might, just, I, might, I might do that. Yeah, I might do that. Yeah, we could throw something up on during the stream of you playing it, and and make sure you record it. your audio while playing it. Because if you have any wild comments about the gameplay, like I did, I'd like to hear them. Oh yeah, you probably only hear. Wow, that's fantastic! What a game! Who's came? Oh, that's right. no. I mean, without uh, without a lot of advanced drinking beforehand. That's what I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's a. I have a bit of a soft spot for Nudroid because it was my first Coco game. Yeah, I, I guess. Like I said, the sound and graphics, and even the game concept is all fine. I have no problems with any of that. Just the control system is a little bit too. 
It's not even just obtuse. It's it's a little too ramped up in difficulty right off the bat to me. It was, it, and that's something you really spent a lot of time in your later games making sure. Like you swapped levels on a couple of games because the ramp up was not right. So you obviously yeah, have learned up, you know, from that. Yeah, yeah. The ramp up wasn't too good. And um, I remember back in the day when I wrote it, I used to play it on the Coco 2 with the, the arrow keys uh, on the Coco 2 layout. And it was it was fine. I, I bounced around quite well. Um, I mean, one thing it takes a bit of getting used to is the fact that once you can only change the direction of the neutroid when it gets to an intersection yep. of the two, the, 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 the grid itself has to have an intersection. So, you know, some people would just say, oh, I wanted to go up. I said, well, you're halfway down. Uh, you're not even at an intersection. It's not going to go up. You can't stop it. You can't reverse it. You can only go forward until you get to an intersection and and there's that time yeah, and then if you have that, one of those other particles coming at you at that time you're just doomed like you can see well, you're that's right. get hit so you, you sort of do have to look ahead a bit so you know that i'm heading towards another uh, what did i call it a protroid or <laughs> uh, an antitroid or whatever i i called it um, some form of australian bs but yeah, yeah. but but basically that was the thing you you didn't actually control the neutroid the neutroid always moved it always traveled forwards um, well, help me understand so you aren't controlling the particle you're controlling the surroundings no, you are controlling the surroundings the indirectly control the that's particle. right you control the grid or the grid and we have played a few games like that where um, you just basically can control which angle the thing will uh, bounce left or right or Basically, what you're doing is you're you're you can control the steering of the particle when it hits an intersection. That's all you that's can do. All. Well, no, that's, yeah, that's you can't change is, direction. You can't. I think reverse, I see. The, you can't I, stop. I think I see the issue here is you're trying to steer the particle and you can't steer it. Yes, it's, that's it's right. Random. I think that you can only I steer the surroundings, which only affect the particle when it passes that's right. intersection. That's yeah. the whole idea. Which it, is not what a, you're trying to do. You're no. not trying to drive the particle, and you can't do that. It's too complicated, man. There, Ron well, just see, summed it up see, perfectly. And, and, and that's the thing. That's what people couldn't quite get. They knew that they thought they were controlling the neutroid, and they're, they're not. They're, they're affecting the neutroid. Uh, they're and controlling the intersections. That's right. You are controlling the reactor of the nuclear, well, whatever. It's not really a reactor, but whatever that is. I just call it a reactor. Um, you're controlling the reactor from the outside. Um, so those are like nuke rods. You can deflect it at 90 degree yeah, increments in the direction of. you're going when you hit an intersection. That's that's the control. That's it. That's right, yeah. Period. You can't stop it. Time, you can't backtrack. You're deflecting a bullet. Well, <clears throat> the only way to backtrack is if you run off, off the, the side grid and And, uh, well, it, it hits the wall and bounces back. Of course, it loses energy if it does that. But if you does can hit a... Does it right to or... Or is it only on the Up top bottom that you lose energy? On, on the Model 1, the original one, it was all the way around, yes. But the graphics are, um, again, because of semi-graphics, the resolution horizontally is lower than what it is vertically. <clears> so it would have been a bit weird to have uh, slightly different uh, characteristics when it went left and right um, versus up and down. So, so um, now shouldn't we play this game one more week? 
now that we, we are, know how to play. We are playing it one more week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, so, it, Ron, it, it, it sounds it, like you're volunteering to join the show Thursday, so please <laughs> yeah, come. We'll see you on Thursday, Ron. Well, well, I'm the kind of guy that watches and pokes fun but doesn't do anything. <laughs> oh, no, well, I'll even do that. Get out there kind of you can pop on and be right the commentator. Uh, don't well, call you, me Ron a just admitted he likes <laughs> Ron. Ron could be the sportscaster live on the on the show here. I'm not a tater. Is it a nuclear reactor? Is that a nuclear reactor? A nuclear reactor called the nuclear chamber. You're controlling the chamber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're controlling the chamber, not the not the particle. So anyway, so you can get a sunburn if you play it too long. All right. So now nobody has an excuse on not knowing how to play this game. Yep. (laughs) And that was that was a long winded way of saying read the. F and manual. <laughs> I did. Oh, it wait, a manual? The, the manual doesn't help the bad control scheme. You got to add a, um, an easy mode in it, uh, Nick, and just call it the Curtis mode. Yeah. <laughs> Unsure, now, instruct- I can stop clear. or I can backtrack. One of the two, not both, because that would be way too easy. But... Instructions unclear. Got my finger caught yeah. in the, in the uh, cartridge port. Oh, we got a Sloopy Malibu here. Yeah, there's now there's someone who appreciates a new droid. Yeah, too bad we've discussed it already. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, moving on. I think we've spent uh, too much time on new droids. Moving on. <laughs> anyway, join us Thursday. Uh, what time, Ken and Sloopy? Sloopy. Eight p.m. Eastern. Eastern time on Thursday. Now, what time is that with the time switch? 8 p.m. It'll still be 8 p.m. <laughs> yeah, for me and Ron, it'll change. Yeah. And Nick, too, I guess. Yeah. Actually, Nick, does, it, does that hour change help you make it onto the uh, Thursday show? <laughs> oh. Uh, let's see. It will be so an hour be different an hour from what you're used to. Earlier. No, I'll still be, uh, I'll still be away. Oh, darn. Yeah, I still will be away. Oh, I'll well, see what like I can I said, do if I can pull some strings but otherwise i'll i'll just try to record a video yeah just record Actually, a video and you can post it for us or just send it to one of us either me or sloopy there is and a then, video uh, on the on the web page actually if you if you want to play that so people can hear what the sound effects are like yeah but we want you to play it now yeah not <laughs> oh, this can okay. where you reprogram the demo to make all it look right, like you can right. actually play the game properly you know none of that crap. <laughs> there you go all right we got to hear your live commentary of you're yep. playing the game Jeez, and- why did i program it this way this is so stupid that's what i'm expecting to hear <laughs> no 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 it's more like god this is good <laughs> yeah we want i've gone downhill this. since this <laughs> <laughs> My anyway, G, be, being my very first uh, Coco game, looking at it, um, I reckon if I look at the code more closely, there'll be many areas I can say, oh, why did I do that? I could have coded it this way. It could have been faster here. I could have yeah, really could rather. There we go, faster. That's what it needs. By the way, yeah, Robin in the chat says, does the time change make Neutroid easier? No, it does not. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. It does. <laughs> so it sounds like you're going to redo it, Nick. No, no, I've already redone it once. Yeah, so redone that, it once. That, twice, twice. Model one to the Coco and then Coco to the twenty fifteen version. Well actually third time's, third time's the, the charm. The latest game I'm working on, which at this point I'm not announcing because I don't know if I can do it. Um it's another game whereby you don't control the object. Um you can you affect the object. Oh well, 
yeah, you affect the object. You actually don't control the main yeah, neutral so, I guess. So you have to so like you breathe on the screen? It's, sorry? You have to breathe on the screen? You know, kind of blow? <laughs> no. <laughs> like no uh, there's, there's gravity. <laughs> there's gravity in this other game, so you sort of have to control uh, this particle not directly again. So there it is. There's... Here we go. Get, Nick uh, is Curtis. making Neutroid 3. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Are you going to call Curtis? it Gravitroid? <clears throat> and if you call it that, I probably won't play it, Nick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nick, Gravit- weren't you, uh, Nick, were you in your teens when you first, uh, when you did the first version of this? I was still in high school, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. Neutroid 3 confirmed. Yay! <laughs> well, well, that's, that's not really, that. but... Uh, it's, Buy yeah. your coffee today. Okay, we ready for commercial break? Nope. No, we yeah, need Ken to announce the we next game. Announce another game. Dang. Okay. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> okay, well, I'll get ahead with this. And, uh, Neutroid we playing, 3. We are playing Neutroid again for another week, and nobody has any excuses for Yay. not knowing how to play it. <laughs> and our next game is... Gravitroid. Going back in the catalog a little bit. No one had any excuse for playing Neutroid because I showed them how in last week's show. Hey, yeah. I don't even have so, to guess this one. The title's right on the screen. Yeah, the title's right on the screen, so. Food Fight. Creature Feature. Creature Feature. I've never seen this one. Yeah, it's... I'll just it was one of that. four games by the same author that came out at the same time. I think it started advertising in 83. 83 by John Nakowski. Yeah, he did some work for Color Quest, which was the games division of Nelson, later Softlaw, the guys that did VIP Library. This was their, uh, he was part of the ones that did like Nibbler and a few others, I think, if I remember correctly, a couple of the games too for them. And then he kind of branched off and did his own company, which is where this one's from. So basically, after Neutroid, this is a game for Curtis. It's very simple. You just walk around the screen and shoot things. Shoot everything. And uh, avoid the white dots that are on the screen because they kill you. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, after playing Neutroid, I did want to shoot everything, so that's perfectly (laughs) (laughs) Now, we're ready for a uh, commercial break, Mark. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Aaron of The Coco Show. And you're watching or listening to The Coco Nation, the live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its cousins. All hail the Coco Nation. Oh. Oh. In a world where RGB produces black and white video, one cable can make a difference. Switcheroo. Google3scartcable.com from the land down under where toilets flush backwards and thongs 
are a respectable form of casual footwear. I am Nick Morentis and I have been developing games for the Coco for over 35 years. Welcome to the Coco Nation, the interactive live video talk show for all enthusiasts of the Coco family of computers. Return. Defeat innumerable monsters to ransom the king's scepter stolen by the evil wizard. Your sword, shield, and wits are your only allies. Pray you find a magical inn as your only respite in the forest of doom. For the tiny color computer one, two, and three. November 2017, if you dare. When you want the latest in TRS-80, Tandy, Dragon, MC-10, and all of their hardware cousins, no matter what it takes, or where news breaks, from around the world, to your nation, the Coco Nation News, with L. Curtis Boyle. That was actual live footage of me playing Neutroid. <laughs> this man's on fire <laughs> I wanted to burn something I'll tell you that Hey, so we got just a couple of uh, game related news stories here and honestly this could have been under programming as well so Tier City uh, Computer Programming Channel on YouTube uh, he's been working on two games simultaneously Tales of Suburbia and uh, Ghost Saga this is Ghost Saga as you can see here so he did another video here and he's kind of explaining you know, some of the concepts he's putting into the game. He has a, a little bit of extra stuff on the engine. He's got a, a, the ability to duck now, which will be critical later on in the game too. But he's actually showing you what some of the gameplay will be. Or um, he goes through about three of the screens. I won't play them all here. I'll play a little bit of this little bit here on the first screen. But it becomes kind of a arcade adventure hybrid, which is actually kind of neat. So in this case here, he's killed the ghost that was floating around, which you've seen before if you've been watching anywhere coverage of his previous videos. But now he's going to walk up to the door, and because the ghost is gone, the joystick button will now open the door to get into the building, which is basically just switching to a text mode to describe something, as opposed to, like, swinging your axe to kill the ghost. So I'll just play a little bit of that to kind of see the direction he's going, but he's got stuff where you've got to get certain items to do certain things, and you have to go back and forth between screens. So it becomes a much more involved game than the original you know, demos he's done. The ghost, we can open the door, and it says the door to your house is locked. All right. And um, I, I must have a glitch in here somewhere because it's not letting me out of the dialogue box. It's supposed to go for um, a certain amount of time, but it's staying there and I'm not sure why. 
This is part of live coding fun where stuff happens. You don't have a clue why. More time to read it, but it's just supposed to flash by real quick. So that and he lowers his weapon. Um, if you can see that now, the handle, the butt of the handle is down here, and so it's. So I won't play the whole thing, but basically, like the second screen here, he explains that he's going to have these arrows, which are going to be a bit lower on the final one. It's not going to have a little box around. He's just doing that to calculate the size of the get put buffer. But now you got to duck to get under this because you can't actually hit it. It's too high for you to swing at. And then behind one of these tombstones, you're going to find a key, which will then unlock the door, which then gets you an object that's in the house that you'll need on the third screen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's becoming an interactive adventure arcade hybrid, which actually is kind of cool. And he's been using the P-copy technique. We'll get into another video he's done that I know Mark noticed here this morning as well, but I'd already talked to him about it. Um, but that'll be coming up with the regular news because it's more programming stuff. And then the second game on related one this week is, of course, Jim Gary, you know, slacking off and only doing one this week. But he did, uh, this will be an Alan Huffman favorite, I'm sure, but it's a Doctor Who adventure he's doing uh, on, the, on the MC-10. And this is based on one by, uh, as you can see on the um, description here in the bottom, by Jeremy Guggenheim in 1983. And this was actually from Computer and Video Games Magazine, March 1983 issue. And this was originally for the Atari 400 and 800. And he actually found some bugs in the original code. There's a bunch of ghost subs that didn't do a return. So eventually we just keep filling the stack with ghost sub addresses and eventually crash, even on the Atari. So we fixed that <laughs> only 40 years later. But hey, I'll play a little bit of that. It actually looks like a pretty interesting little uh, game, especially if you're a Doctor Who fan. A little bit of a description there, what your mission is. And three difficulty levels that you can pick from. Which, if you're watching the video, you can obviously see this yourself, but I'm describing it for the audio listeners. So let's fast forward a little bit to the actual gameplay. There we go. So in this case, he ran up to the little TARDIS. Now he walked inside the TARDIS, which, of course, is bigger on the inside than on the outside. For Dr. Who fans who obviously know that already. Exit the TARDIS again. Now he's walking through a door on the top. And you can see a mummy case. So it has little descriptions of what you're finding down on the bottom left. And then you, you go up gather items and go between rooms, et cetera, like that, and, and fly in the TARDIS, et cetera. Stuff will chase you down. But it looks like a pretty involved uh, game. And if you're a Doctor Who fan, there's definitely a lot of references to the TV show. So I, I think it would be a fun one to try. I wouldn't mind seeing a high-res version of this one, either for the MC-10 or the Coco at some point. All right, that's it for the game on specific news and i'll switch over to the regular news let me just bring the window up so i can see what i'm doing here and share that so speaking of alan huffman he did another blog post and this time he's deep diving into tokenized lines and how they're stored in basic how much memory they take and he wrote a little utility in basic itself as you can see on the screenshot here It'll show you the address and then the address pointing to the next line. So basically that first one is line zero. It starts at address 9729 and it has a pointer that says the next line is going to start at 9747. So it's an 18 bytes of, of tokenized basic and then it goes through and lists them all. And he goes into a you know quite a bit of detail here on how that works and you know uh, going through the memory and how it gets allocated. He shows you exactly how to figure out where everything for basic starts with some peaks, like where does a string variable storage start? Where do arrays start and end? Um, where do regular variables start? Uh, the basic program itself, where does that start? And basically, he actually published the code for this in here. So if you want to put this into your own program to figure out where stuff is happening, 
in basic, you can actually merge this with you. And that's just a go sub and it'll kind of, you can basically set it up to, you know, dump whatever lines you need to know about. And this will come in handy, I think, later on, because you can actually embed machine language subroutines in stuff like strings. And this will actually be able to tell you where that string is being held in the basic program. So you can actually do the pokes into basic itself to embed an ML subroutine because there's some other techniques for doing it, but this will be a way you can actually kind of just do it yourself if you need to without having to find a third party thing to do it. So looking forward to see where he's going to go. He is planning on a, a SQL one, as he mentions here. <clears throat> for an upcoming article, I expect to use a version of the code to prove something as it relates to basic and the length of lines. But it might also be fun to generate statistics, longest line, shortest line, a graph, the different line links, et cetera. So looking forward to the second also, article. Uh, you can also put graphics directly into a uh, print statement or a string. Yeah, the semi uh, stuff like the MC10 does. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> there was some uh, third-party programs that did that too. Um, yep. But this is actually learning how it works under the hood, which is cool. Next up, this was just kind of cool. Um, James Diffendaffer did a little graphics port here. Um, and for those of you watching on the uh, video version of the show there, you can see if you've ever were a fan of the Battlestar Galactica, the original TV series from the 70s and 80s, not not the reboot. Um, it's one of the... Uh, oh, what's it? Viper, yeah. Exactly. Colonial Viper. That's what it's called. Yep, Colonial Viper. Yep. Um, and this is basically drawn on a Coca-1 and 2. And this was originally based on one written by Monty McGraw in 2000 for a Tech 4052. And Monty himself actually has commented on this. Um, and then Monty went and talked about uh, fiddling around with this uh, view here, which is basically, if you remember the old TV show, they had this kind of circular and uh, diagonal oh, yeah. and horizontal line grid pattern for aiming at shooting a Cylon. And thought it would be pretty cool to see an animated version of that on the Coco after seeing what, what James had done. Now, James didn't get a chance to do it, but Paul Fisk or Paul Shoemaker came in and did one here. And let's see if I can increase the size. Are you guys seeing this now? The full size version? Yep. So he actually quickly wrote a program that does do the animation. So you can actually see, you know, kind of steering around and here's the Cylon. You're trying to get it in your sights to launch from the Colonial Viper to kill it. So I remember I watched this show religiously as a kid, even though it had some stupid stuff like that. What did they call that dog thing? The little robot doggy. No, I Dag it. Yeah, that that's what it was getting a little bit too childish for me at that point. But mind you, I was in my teens already. So as as a you know a, a younger kid, I probably would have loved it. But but I still love the show. It was, it was awesome fun. So it was just kind of cool to see. Stargate SG One did a lot better of throwing back to you know Egypt and uh, uh, lore of like Thor, the mythology stuff. Then uh, yeah, kind of linking it all up. Yep. So it was kind of cool to see James did this port. The original author came on to comment and mention it'd be cool to see one of these things. And then Paul Shoemaker comes in within 24 hours and basically just does that exact demo he'd asked for. So that was neat. Next up now, is Tim still on the call? I am. Okay, I'm just going to display the screen. You can explain what's going on and how you're involved. Oh, I'm going to be an attendee at a regional um, gaming show. <laughs> Called uh, eight bits or less retro gaming festival down in Corvallis, uh, Oregon. By eight times it says sixty four bits or less. Oh, what did I say? Eight, eight bits. bits. <laughs> eight bits or more. 
Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, we'll go that way. <laughs> um, looks like it's going to be a fun time. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, come on by. It's uh, June 3rd and 4th. I believe that's a Saturday and a Sunday. Yep. And um, should be a lot of fun, hopefully. Now, it says here it's sponsored by the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which is the show you and AJ attended to, right? Yeah, that's the show in the fall that's uh, way huge in, in Portland proper. So this is actually on a county fairground, so I'm I'm not familiar with uh, Benton County, but is that like out in the country somewhere, or is that in a town? Or yes, what? it's out in the country. I live in Benton County, Oregon, so yes, it's out in the country. Yep. So you go yep. sit out in, like in the grass by a forest, and <laughs> you guys, I mean, like what not, big not diesel generators and fire up machines, or how does this work? Well, I, I expect there will be a building. It's on a county fairground. They're, they usually have buildings, you know, places to put yeah. the hogs and the cows. Yes, they have lots of buildings, mainly open barns. Okay, because the screenshot they're showing here, like, or not screenshot, the photo they're showing here is actually it's it's set of chairs and tables out in the grass. Yeah, it does show that. That doesn't look anything like I've seen at the Benton County Fairground, but I haven't seen all bits of it. So. Yeah, that looks like somebody's backyard. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have any tr- homeless trouble or anything? Oh, uh, Homeless cows, maybe. They live down by the river, which is the opposite side of town from the counter fairground. And one thing I'll do is I'll read a little bit of description, then I'll get uh, Tim to maybe comment on. So they said the goods. And they mentioned the consoles they're planning on having includes Pong, the original, Atari 2600, Magnavox Odyssey 2, Intellivision, ColecoVision, Atari 7800, Sega Master System, NES, Genesis, Super Nintendo, TurboGrafx-16, Nintendo 64, Sega Saturn, PlayStation. All original hardware on CRTs, not LEDs. Uh, a great selection of games. The shooting gallery. So they're going to have a whole bunch of uh, laser gun based games. Or not like like late light gun, not laser gun. Sorry. So this will include some stuff. The NES, Sega Masters, Sega Genesis. I don't know if Tim's planning because I know he's built one of the DICOM ones. You could bring a Coco 3 and display the couple <laughs> games that we did there. And the computer lab, they mentioned the Atari 800, the TR City Color Computer, Commodore VIC 20, TN94A, IBM PS1 Advisor running Windows 3.1.1, IBM Aptiva running Windows 98, and you can play Oregon Trail. So I was wondering, Tim, are you involved with the Coco side of this, or no, are you nope. just in? No, I'm not. Uh, just attendee. It's going to be fun. Okay. Well, any well, any plans of bringing out a, a, a light gun to show them that the Coco Three did some of the light gun games too? Or? Um, well, uh, I sold mine a few years ago, so I don't even have one in possession. Oh, what is wrong with you? Uh, <laughs> exactly. So are you guys just going basically to represent your show then to, yeah. uh, to play games and stuff? Well, yeah, we're going to go play games, hand out business cards, you know, try to draw up uh, viewers. Okay. Children under uh, five and under are free. It's $20 in advance, $25 at the door. Um, yeah. It doesn't say if that's for both days combined or if that's per day. It does not. And it runs Saturday, June the 3rd from 1 p.m. till 10 p.m. And Sunday, June the 4th from 11 a.m. till 8 p.m. So if you're up in the, what is that, Corvallis, I think it was called? Yeah, Corvallis. Yes. So what what, what large city is that near, just for people that don't know Oregon? Um, not really. Corvallis is like the largest city. <laughs> that is the large city. <laughs> That's it 60, is the large 000. city, man. <laughs> yeah, so what, what's the population of Corvallis then, Mark, just so I know? 60,000. It's also the home oh, of Oregon State, Oregon State University, which is uh, oh, a really good, good engineering yeah. college. It's like it's a college town. Oh, okay. Well, that's not bad then. I was thinking like it was going to be like a population of 500 to Hamlet or something. No. <laughs> so I actually live uh, five miles north of Corvallis in a little place called Adair Village, but I'm still in Benton County. Um, yeah, the largest city is Portland, but that's an hour and a half away. 
And that's where the Portland Game, Gaming Expo usually does their stuff in October. So I'm surprised so, they're moving out of the city. So por- the, the Portland Gaming Expo obviously is helping sponsor this, as we mentioned. Do they have any others besides? I didn't know they had more than one show to begin with. So is there Neither more than I. this or just these two? Neither did I. I'm surprised. Yeah, this is all I know about. Um, down the page, it says something about this is the sixth time they've done this, but they've moved it out of the city. I don't know if they've held it in Portland or somewhere else closer to Portland, but uh, somewhere there's a little thing, a little blurb on that. So this will be like the sixth sixth event. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't catch that. I don't. Oh, yeah. Here I we read are. it. I read it there somewhere. Here, here it is. Oh, need room. This oh, is our sixth room. presentation of this event. Due to demand, we're expanding to the Benton County Fairgrounds. Which is weird because, again, it's like an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes from Portland proper. They got to go down the interstate freeway and then uh, it's basically 15 miles to the west. So it's not like hop, skip and a jump. I would have thought they'd have gone like over into Washington State. Well, like, maybe uh, this person's backyard filled up that they had the picture of and, and they yeah, could be to the fairgrounds now. And it could but, be that somebody that's on the board lives down here. And uh, so they wanted to do it down here. And it pretty, could be they got a good rate, too. So. Yeah. So, so Mark and Tim, have either of you ever attended this particular show before? No, it's gonna be new. It'll be new for me as well. But uh, it's like you know nine miles for me, so I probably should go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, you, you, both of you, actually, all three of you, because AJ will be going too to show. Oh yeah, uh, present the logo. Yeah. So that means a live, uh, live. Yeah, maybe. I'm thinking. (laughs) Well, you don't start till one p.m., so that was that's two hours after we usually start. So yeah, it could possibly. (laughs) Yeah, like our shows end after two hours, Mark. Well, that would be (laughs) right about now. (laughs) Exactly. We'll be able to go right till the 10 p.m. closing times, but I figure. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. Now, does either one of you have any idea who, who's bringing the cocoa? There's obviously another cocoa no. user there, if it's not either of you. I don't know who it is. No. We should well, invite uh, them on the show. Maybe, uh, Tim, uh, do, are you in contact with the people at the show at all? No, but I, um, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make those uh, those emails. Okay, yeah, because if, if they want to come on and promote the show and then just we'll meet another Cocoa user, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. I'll send some emails. Cool, thanks. Next up, and this is um, kind of a sequel to one we covered before. So uh, this is the TRS-80 uh, retro programming again with the two games he's been working on. So one thing he's done recently is he switched from just doing raw put, raw put, and which kind of does crappy, slow, you can watch it draw things. And I gave him a, a bit of a tip of using P copy, so you can just copy the background and then just do a put right over top of it without having to do the erase and everything else, which sped up his uh, gameplay quite a bit, like multiple times. Uh, but it, it still shows this rectangular block around your character. So he was asking, like, how do you do background masking? He didn't know it was called that, but how do, how do you actually get something to go over top of a background without wrecking it? And I was trying to explain it to him, and of course, it's it's using logic like and and or and stuff, which if you don't understand, that's pretty complicated to figure out that first time. And trying to do it through just you know YouTube comments did not work well. <clears throat> so I ended up sending him uh, a disk image, which actually has got a few other things. I'll actually be showing this at the end of the show today just to, as a bit of a tip for people who want to go grab it and take a look at it too. And basically what you have to do is you have to create a background mask. And this is basically what pixels do you want to show through from the background when you put something over top? And then you add that onto the screen. And then you immediately or the actual sprite itself over top of that. And the combination of the two will basically have your sprite data showing. But whatever is underneath 
from the background in the background mask will then show still show through. So it actually looks like it's going over top. And uh, this was uh, an almost hour long video of him going through and, and trying to understand my directions. Obviously, I'm not a very good teacher, um, but he actually did end up getting it working. Like a, he did one mistake earlier on here where he had the background color set to a color that actually has some bit set. So the ending did not work properly. But then he figures out if you if restore to green, which is colors, you know, unfortunately, basic calls a color one. It's actually color zero internally. Uh, basically, this is a four color mode. So you have your four bit combination, zero, 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 one, one, zero, one, one. That represents your four colors. Zero, zero is green in this picker screen uh, color set he's using. Yellow would be zero, one. Blue is one, zero. And red is one, one. And basically, you have to set basically just color zero and three, the, the zero, zero and the one, one bits for the mask. And then you can do whatever colors you want. You can have anything show up as transparent or not. So he starts to get it working here. I'll just play no. That should have worked. In this case here, he, he had changed it to highlight the so, shape on the top by using a blue background so the contrast was better. But then now the bit combination isn't the right one for doing a background mask. Because basically the background mask sure to the top half where working. the circle is, and then the bottom is the coin uh, shape he was trying to do. Now when it's masking it on, it's this obviously not working. So this is where he kind of figured out in his own what he had changed and done wrong. Yeah, I don't know, guys. Uh, let's edit. Let's edit three. Let's get rid of this. Let's run this over. Now it works. Okay, so um, there it is. There's your blended in sprite. The problem was I had a blue background and you can't start with a blue background. You have to start with a green background. Okay. So and that's because green is a zero, zero bit and the red that he's telling it to show through is the one one bit because you're basically doing bit masking and you, you have to understand how colors work uh at, at the bit level and the same thing works with the coco 3 except now you have four bits on you know if you're using a 16 color screen now this is kind of a technique that you know people like nick and paul fiscarelli and paul schumacher and you know, they use this kind of stuff all the time that's how you do text if you want text on a, a nitrous 9 graphic screen to show up and leave the background alone um it's the same thing when you turn the transparency on off it's basically doing exactly this so, I, like I said, I have a little demo disc that I sent him, which has a little bit on this and also some other little techniques you can do in basic, which I don't know how commonly are known. So we'll cover that at the end of the show today. Um, but basically, he got it working. I mean, he had to struggle a little bit and he, he still doesn't quite understand how logic works. There's also an option for put uh, with the not option. And what not does is reverse the bits. So zero, zero becomes one, one, zero, one becomes one, zero. Basically, any zero becomes a one, any one becomes a zero. And basically, inverses the colors and uh that one actually doesn't need an actual get put buffer it just needs the size of a get put buffer and you can if you want to like flash something to have it invert and then invert back to normal and make it blink basically you can actually just do that um and one thing he noticed here later on when he's doing the actual animation and he added, added a little bit of routine here to move the shape around with the arrow keys um is that if you're doing it live on the screen that you're viewing you will see it draw the background mask briefly and then draw the actual shape over top that merges it but it gives you kind of a like blinky effect which uh you know on a game you might want to actually do that to make see, something highlight well since they use in keys because see it's like blink 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 blinking like that that's insane guys 
and I can do it. I can move it like that. And uh, but this is because you're watching watching the two masks getting drawn over top of each other. Um, so the couple ways to avoid this, and I mentioned that in the comment to him, is that you can either um, probably the easiest way is to just to draw it off screen, like P mode on the Coco one and two has multiple pages that you can do. Unfortunately, Coco 3 did not support this for their high-res modes. But basically, you could actually have it displaying. Like right now, he's play, He's displaying P-Mode 1, 1. So he's displaying page 1, the green part. Page 2 is the blue part. You could draw stuff on page 3 or 4, but leave the screen showing page 1 and 2. So you could actually draw a copy of the background and the mask or the, the coin shape and then just flip to that screen to show it, or you could get that shape and then plop it on the screen, pre-rendered, pre-masked, everything else. So just bang, it comes on, and you don't get this flickering, flashing thing. On the other hand, if you want to highlight something as being special, maybe you want it to blink. So, I mean, that depends on what kind of technique you want to use there. But there's a couple of ways to get around the blinking. But he's quite happy that he actually got the masking, because now he can have shapes go across things without drawing a stupid rectangle around it. So... It was. I was glad he finally got it to work because we were trying to get the discs back and forth for, I think, over a week. Because YouTube, every time I posted a link for him to come grab it off my site, it would eat the link and delete the message. <laughs> it's just YouTube is being a pain in the ass. Anyway, I'll, we'll cover that a bit at the end of the show here today. But next up, and I, I mean, Tim, I think you said you revised the manual <clears throat> to cover the changes here, so you probably knew about this a bit more than I did. I only found out about it this morning because I don't <laughs> yeah. regularly. Darren sites. If you want to explain what the update to the Coco STC covers, I well, do have first notes. Off, I, I, I really want to thank Darren. You know, you, uh, you, you send off um, feature requests, you, you send off bugs, and the man's great. He's very responsive. He, he's an excellent coder. Uh, things get done. I, I sent in a feature request a few uh, months ago about uh, being a, being able to change uh, the disk in a set, the active disk in a set, you know, via software rather than rather than pushing the button, and he um, and this new latest uh, update has it in the firmware where you can send a command to change the disk in a set. Uh, there's plenty of other stuff new in the firmware. There's plenty uh, new in the in the basic. Um, the basic SDC DOS, yeah. SDC DOS. Um, you know, you can change the step rate on real floppy drives now. Uh, with a simple little basic command, um, you, you were saying that the the default uh, date for new files is um, the release date of the firmware. The release date of the firmware, rather than uh, other other things. Um, hey, if Coco has an RTC, maybe maybe we can request a feature to set the date of. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> of, a, of a file in. I'd buy second ones of these to get that. Um, but yeah, uh, the 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 download the new PDF is available on Darren's site. It's also on Coco Archive. Um, and um, yeah, update your SDC. It's a great little addition. What's the number? Number I don't of know. What? Oh, the firmware update. Yeah, yeah. sure. No. Oh, one point six is old. What's what's yeah? One two seven is the new firmware, and SCC DOS is one seven five. Okay, one seven five. And I've I've got a list here of, of basically what has been added. So we'll I'll skip the ones that have already been covered. The the thing that actually kind of triggered I think him actually doing the new release even more so than feature requests from myself and and Tim and others was Carl England was working on trying to get copy protected discs in the SDF format, which is you know the the full version of tracks and sectors. David Ladd can probably go into it more than I can. No, no. Um, what? Don't don't trigger him. 
Diamond <laughs> <laughs> Don't <trigger> me. <laughs> this is his favorite part of the show where we're geeking out on floppies. Um, sure. But basically, Carl England hit a few spots here where you can make an SDF image, but there were certain you know hidden tricks that some of the copy protection schemes used on sector numbers and stuff like that, the uh, deleted data address marks, et cetera, that wasn't fully supported on the SDC, so it couldn't run these programs. And Carl's been going around making his new SDC magic or whatever he's calling the new version of his backup magic for the yep. SDC specifically, and uh, had been going back and forth with Darren on you know what what needed to be fixed, and all of that is fixed now. So basically, he can make uh, with his uh, new utility, Coco Carl's new utility. utility. Yeah, you can actually make full copy protected disk copies of all kinds of stuff we couldn't do properly before. And I know some of the games that he'd mentioned he tried it on that were working now are ones that are not quite intact on the archive right now. Like they have graphic glitches or they crash or you know, whatever else. Yeah, that happens when you crack these old games sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, I'm hoping we the... can actually get some of these, you know, old cop old games fixed now so that they like I know Gauntlet 2 is an example where, you know, the warrior, if he turns a certain direction, maybe it's not the warrior, <laughs> but one of the shapes actually like a chunk of the graphics is wrong. Thexter had the same problem too. Uh it wasn't nipples like Ken and or uh, Tim and uh, AJ were saying. Uh, just him. Just him. <laughs> just just him. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't unsee that since you said it. So uh <clears throat> thanks a lot. Um so basically there's that the the the, the uh, switching disks in a disk set as tim already mentioned there's the added option for APA transfers in the right logical sector that has always been there for the read and that was actually set up to use the tfm from the 6809 or 6309 sorry mm-hmm. um now one thing he mentions that he has not tested it to see if it's fully reliable 1.78 megahertz on a coco 3 now then I, that is something i pressed for a while ago and he wasn't sure if he had enough room left on the um, cpld to actually program it to handle that speed Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. That's something I'll have to test. But right now, as it currently stands, if we're running Nitrous 9, for example, which normally runs double speed, period, all the time, if we have to do a write to the SDC, we clock it back to Cocoa 1 and 2 speed until the write's done, and then kick it back on again. So I'm hoping this will solve that, because it would make stuff like running C compiles or packing basic programs or assembly, you know, making assembly programs and stuff a lot faster, because you'd be able to run it full throttle instead of keeping, you know, having to drop, you know, drop the clock rate down. Um, he's at, and this is uh, this I don't know too much about. Uh, Tim and I were kind of discussing a little bit in the pre-show. It sounds like you haven't had a chance to really try too much of this either yet. Uh, but adding options for creating and mounting files that aren't necessarily disk images. These can only be accessed using LBA sector commands or the stream command. Now, the stream command originally you could like read from, but that's all you could do. But it sounds like you can actually create files that are outside of the disk images themselves. Um, maybe you could, for example, read in the configuration file that you normally have to save from a PC or a Linux or a Mac box to set your defaults. You may be able to, with the utility that knows how to use the LBA mode, access that file and change it from the Cocoa without having to boot up the PC at all. I'm hoping that's what it... Yeah, that, that would be useful to edit the config uh, file uh, on the Cocoa itself. Yeah. But also, you could um, add in like you know, you know, digitized sound files that you're too big to fit on a standard Cocoa memory. You could just blast out and then use the stream command afterwards to like load them back into you know, issue out to the DAC or something. So previous so. to this uh, update, when you mounted, um, well, when you mounted a disk image, it would it would probe that file to see what kind of disk image it was. So, you know, how many tracks it thought it had, how many how many sides it thought it had, and then. Then it would configure itself so that the the cylinder head and side um, methods of accessing the disk would would work. Um, 
And of course, you could do it in LBA mode. Um, but what he's added here to the new version is a way of mounting disk images, but just to ignore all the disk image stuff. It no longer tries to interpret what's inside the file. It just will let you treat it as a logical array of blocks. And um, that uh, helps in mounting non-disk image files. And some of the some of the things we've seen that use that are like video players. Like Ed Snyder's little demo that he did. Yeah. Cool. But doesn't that already play? Read only. Now you can actually write if you wanted to. Yeah. This the stream command, which automatically will read um 512 bytes at a time. Um, is read-only, but uh, the LBA read-and-write um, function should work on, on normal files, not disk images. Yeah. So theoretically, let's, let's say you've got two hard drive images mounted, and that's the maximum you can currently have. Let's say you've got a third hard drive image you want to grab a file off. Technically, using the LBA mode, you should be able to open that in stream mode and actually copy files off that third hard drive image onto one of the two you actually got actively mounted. Well, that that won't work. You, you still only have two mount points. Uh, oh, even, even with the LBA mode where you're talking? It, you're right. Even with LBA mode, uh, oh, it, 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 it works on one of the two mount points. The, they're numbered zero and one. And does stream um, work that way too, or does stream let you open an, an extra s- file? Stream uses one of, the, one of the mount points as well. Ah, darn. Um, yeah. So, th- so, so is that made that way so that in the future we can do more, um, you know, graphical streaming or more video playing on the cover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it easier to yeah, build or sound, video players. Sound streaming too. You can do background sound that way as well. Yeah, yeah. And then and some got- patches that that covers basically the the patches he's done to the firmware. Now, when we mm-hmm. get into SDC DOS itself, he's also added stuff which. Uh, Tim already mentioned the be able to change the step rate if you have real floppy drives hooked up at the same time. Is there use a the menu depths. for it? No, for... it's command line. No, these oh. are command line stuff. Okay. Now that could be incorporated into SCC Explorer if Wim wants to add that in. But if you have depth step equals and you can pick 6, 12, 20, or 30, so you can change the millisecond step to step rate. Radio Shack DOS defaults to 30, the absolute slowest one, because that's their very first generation of drives from 1981, 82. That's what they ran at. But if you anybody's had an experience running three and a half inch drive and stuff under Nitrous 9, like real drives, you can actually increase the speed of the track to track seeking and stuff by quite a bit. Were and it makes doing... the drive quieter also. It doesn't have that chunk, chunk, chunk sound. It's just more like a zzz, like an IBM PC would have if you're doing that type of thing. And actually, it does speed up disk access a fair bit if you're running random access files, well, et cetera. EDOS did that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, EDOS had that option too. And CDOS. Yes. Yeah, and uh, Steve Bjork's little disk fix patch program, I think, had that option as well, if I remember. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, well, my question is, um, in this, is it a PDF file? Do they have the syntax to use on there? Yeah, uh, Tim, you did that update yeah. for that. Right? Yeah, that's that's okay. in the uh, the PDF file. So well, thank you. This right over here. Um, he's patched the backup and disk any commands. Um, both of them no longer will erase the current program or variables in memory. So mm-hmm. before, if you accidentally disk any disk, you forgot to save something, that program was gone. Uh, not anymore. So you can do that. Um, that's that's cool, especially with disk any. That was when I sometimes forgot and blew things yeah. up. And as much I as it. I complain about prompts, that would have been a good place for a prompt. 
Yeah, exactly. Are you sure? Yeah. You're about to wipe anything you have. Not just on the disc, but in RAM, too. Right. Um, Diskini's also been patched to tolerate up to six granules of uh, nine sectors per granule that have bad sectors in them and still allow you to format the disk. And it'll do the same thing OS9 does, where it finds bad sectors. It'll mark them as used, so you can't accidentally try to write something there that's not reliable. So that way you can actually use some disks that you know do have some errors on them, say you have a scratch or something, but you can still use the rest of the disk fine. It'll handle up to six granules at a time before it aborts and said, you know, this disk is so screwed, I don't even want to try it. So that's that's one nice thing that's been added as well. And this one, uh, Tim, maybe you know more about this than I do. I was trying to talk to some of the hardware guys. I can't remember those before or after you were on the pre-show. But uh, I'll just kind of quote here. Um, Sector I.O. code has been rewritten to use a status polling rather than the halt NMI, which is kind of the infinite loop method where you basically just jam, load, store, load, store, and the non-masculine interrupt will break you up once the sector's done. Um, this prevents problems that can happen on a Cocoa 1 or 2 due to a lack of pull-up resistors on the address bus and read-write lines. He notes particularly if the 6809 has been replaced with a 6809. I've ran mine on my Cocoa 1, and it's, I've never had a problem that he's describing. Do you know exactly what that's about, Tim? I don't know exactly what that's about, but I, I can speculate as much as the next man. Um, it it sounds like he rewrote the uh, I.O. kernel um, uh, to use status pulling rather than halting. and um, Frankly, that seems like magic to me because I didn't think the 6809 had enough time to do status polling. Do you think he's it only doesn't talking normally because about... we tried that yeah. in Nitrous 9. Do you think he's only talking about when communicating with the emulated floppy disk? Or do you think he's talking about both communicating with the emulated floppy disk and when you're um hey. talking to a Real floppy disk. You think it's just the uh, the STC? Okay. Do, do you think he's listening in? I have no idea. Yeah, cool. Good leaders would be good and because it, it, because you know he of course has written the emulator um, to emulate the the floppy disk, and so he can he can be a little bit more flexible with with his status pulling and and not drop any bytes. So if that's the case, yeah, because that was the problem with the original. Like when we tried Nitrous Nine with the six three zero nine, we were hoping to be able to get it running fast enough that we did not have to use the halt, and it was somewhat reliable, but not enough. It was it would still cause errors every once in a while, and a bit too often for Bill and my tastes. Um, that it was running in native mode, mm-hmm. but basically. Yeah, because basically it halts the CPU. That's why you lose keyboard type ahead and stuff like that in, under OS 9. Is because basically it literally shuts the CPU off for a little bit. And if the PA is trying to read something, forget it. It's all halted. So <clears throat> if if he's just changed it, tweaking, like basically you got presented a byte from the sector read for a certain amount of time, and then it's on to the next byte whether you read it or not. And that's the problem we were having. We were trying to get it running in our native mode was that it almost worked. It was so close. Uh, but it would corrupt like five bytes a sector or something like that and lose them. And then it would actually get off, you know, you'd be expecting 56 bytes. You might have only got 252 or something like that. So the, your your program will go like, what, where the hell are the other four and where are they supposed to go? So I'm hoping that means that he's basically just extended the amount of time it's present on the bus. Or maybe it just leaves it on the bus until you've read it and then kicks out. That's that's how the no-hold floppies basically work. They had a, you know, a, separ- a sec- separate cache. Like the disk was at a 256 byte cache and the Sardis had 8K or 32K. It would basically read the sector and then you could just read it at your leisure, like take as much time as you want. Or 
read it as fast as you can or whatever, you know, basically it was basically didn't have to hold the CPU whatsoever. And that's why type ahead worked a lot better. Hard drive interfaces do that a lot too. They're all buffered. So I'm not quite sure which way he's doing. The part that confuses me is this talk about having, you know, lack of pull-up resistors on the address bus and read write lines, particularly if you replaced a 6639 for a Cocoa 1 and 2. I don't understand what most of that means because I'm not a hardware guy. So I don't know if anybody wants to speculate on that. Maybe some of the hardware guys like Mark or, or Rick. Well, yeah, CMOS does not assert the bus at all and Tri-State, it just floats. And CMOS is the original 6809. No, CMOS is the, oh, CMOS the, is the 6309. The 6809 yeah. was NMOS. NMOS. So it's going to kind of trend. It, 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 they're different. So I could see there'd be some subtle problem when you really start driving things where the same is not the same. Just because of the difference between NMOS and CMOS. And I can't really pull up any details right now because it's Saturday. Well, the question is, like, I, I've swapped out a 6809 to a 6309 on my Cocoa 1 years ago. I've used it a fair bit. Ken, I know you've done the same thing. I've well, never hit a problem with the floppy controllers. The, the thing to keep in mind is digital computers aren't digital. They're analog devices that pretend to be digital. So... 99% of the time and 100% of the time are two different things. So it's very, you know, driven as, you know, as intended by the data sheet. One thing will work perfectly, but as you want to do it, maybe it won't. So a couple of extra pull-down resistors can put some insurance in. You know, it's like a hard drive without the terminator will work sometimes, and sometimes it won't. Well, it's, it's because it's not a digital device. It's an analog device pretending to be digital signals. So if I'm understanding correct, Rick, basically what you're saying is that some cocos may have worked fine not needing any of this stuff, but this would help some of those edge well, cases. Well, 90% where it of the code will work fine. I mean, I'm finding out as I'm building hardware that cocos are, you know, there, there's a, a range of what works. And when you stick strictly to the rules, it works on every cocoa. And then the more you deviate, the less it works. So the more we try to improve our performance, the more we run into those edge cases where, okay, now we really need some pull-up resistors to get this line back up quick enough instead of when we get float up by itself. And, and that's kind of mind-boggling because, you know, aren't we dealing with everything being zeros and ones? Evidently not. Well, no, we're dealing with, okay, if it's below 1.8 volts, it's a zero. And if it's above 2.3 volts, it's a one. And, and okay, well, what if it's 2.295? Okay, well, it's... Yeah, what uh, if it's in between when you're trying to <laughs> access it type thing? I'll just read. There's a whole bunch of comments in the chat here from other hardware experts that I'll, I'll just read out. So Franklin Harris of RetroRewind says, they should be pulled down with 10K resistor. Mike Miller says the halt puts the bus into high impedance. On the Cocoa 3, there are some pull-ups. On the Cocoa 1, 2, and the Dragon, there are none. This can lead to undefined bus states, which I think is where you're talking about the voltages are in between what a 0 and a 1 should be. Um, for example, writes when there shouldn't be writes. Getting rid of the halt makes it work guaranteed. Uh, Frank says they don't have to be unless there is some noise. Um, Mike says, uh, we had this problem on the Dragon a lot with the Cocoa SDC and have adopted pull-ups as a fix. So apparently that was a problem on the Dragon with the Cocoa SDC itself too. And then Frank says, Rick is 100% correct. Most of the time it isn't needed, but there are edge cases. So um, Paul used to make uh, 
when he you know was alive he he made uh 6309 sockets with a like what he called he called them a bu- buffers on there mm-hmm. is that what we're talking about i don't believe so well, that's what, a little well, different well, what are buffers so that you know they're to protect it, spikes yeah okay from spikes so what are the things you're talking about timing timing issues i think right my understanding right right so if i had a like, well, like when you're changing, like you mentioned, like I say, 1.8 volts and under is a zero bit, 2.2 volts and higher is a one bit. I'm not sure if that's the right values, but anyway, there's a 0.4 volt middle part there where it's undefined. You don't know if it's a zero one. And if you happen to get the timing so that when you go to read an address or whatever and it's in the middle, it's an undefined voltage. So it doesn't know, is this supposed to be zero? Is this supposed to be one? And I think that's where this is happening, right? Is it my understanding? If you could see my camera at all, I don't know if this shows it. Well, here, let me let me stop sharing here because we want to share this with the the viewers. So, can you zoom up, uh, Rick? There, yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. That's to wake you from your your sickness. From coma. his deathbed. Yeah. yeah. So here's the service wait, he's manual. Not, he's got your full screen. There we go. No, you're up. There we go. So here's the service manual, and you know, notice the signals are not squares; they are like football shapes. So where's and the so gap? That's because of timing. Point at it. That is the timing. Well, like, so every signal is like, it could be down, it could be up, but there's a, a there's a spot in the middle where it's neither. Where it's going up or down in the middle of going and up. And so down. sometimes you have to force it up or down faster than it's going to go by itself. And this is, is that where like you hitting reset to, to get the right color. Well, no, it's just, this is every pulse. So this isn't the best, the best one I could find is just the one I found quickly, but digital signals are not up or down. There is a gray part in the middle. And how you force that gray part. Yeah, ba- basically switching to a zero one and a pure digital means instantaneously you can go from zero to one or one to zero. But because this is dealing with electricity, you're, you've got a bit of time before it goes up enough to become a one or is down that, enough to become a zero. Ramps up and ramps down. Is that why you and, said it was analog? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not really digital. It's an analog thing. So, yeah, there's there's a little gap. You know, you can see how you're trying to line up all these different vertical lines with all of these footballs. And uh, it's it's quite the challenge. Ron, and the bottom the bottom line is the zero, and the top line is the five, most yeah. likely in this case. And that's and the zero and five volts you're talking about. And right. you can see data valid is is like okay, it starts to change here, and it may be actually be valid here, but and then we claim it's valid here, and it's supposed to be good till here, but it might have already died out. But it right, may now, go a little ex- further. Explain what the pull-ups do. They they force it one way or the other, so. Your chip is going to either try to pull it down or pull it high or just leave it alone. All right. So wouldn't so, that make it back to digital? Well, so a pull-up is going analog? to make it go a pull-up's going to make it go quicker towards high, which is a, nothing in this a, case because we're using a pull down. So doesn't yeah. that make it less of analog and make it more no. digital? Why well, not? It just makes it faster in one direction than the other. And so if it's more yeah. important. Instead of waiting, say, 0.5 microseconds to go up to the 5 volts, it's going to jack it up faster to be like 0.2 seconds. So so if you have a pull-up resistor... So if you have a pull-up resistor... I'm going to say, if you're towing something... (laughs) Okay, Rick first, then Mark. You and me together. One, two, three, go! (laughs) Rick first, then Mark. Okay, so if you were towing a car, you want you want a little bit of a drag behind it so the chain doesn't snatch. That's 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 your pull resistor. Keep that keep chain taut. Keep the tension. Yeah. And Mark, how would you explain it? 
So with the, say in the example of a pull-up, the chip only has to provide effort to pull it down and doesn't have to provide effort to bring it to the high state. Resistors do that. The resistor does that. And the other thing is, is that a lot of chips, it's easier for them to pull the line to ground than it is to drive the line. Which, right. if if you look at specifications of like the 74LS chips versus a 74HC, the LS can drive more chips on the output line than a 74HC. And it's because of um, NMOS style chips versus CMOS. CMOS can't drive as many chips, so you have to have a way to um, take the strain off the chip, which would be the pull-up resistor, to pull it up. You know what? Um, <laughs> when you're growing up, you learn about, um, you know, well, computers are digital. They go zero or one, and there's nothing right. in between. All right? And it's then a you lie. Figure, and you listen to this stuff, and you, it, it, exactly. It's all a lie. Every, everything <laughs> you knew is wrong. <laughs> oh, well, see, well, we the thing is, analog is one of those things that if, which is why under the cocoa, it's it's not just the analog plane that for the RF shield also acts as an a uh, shield to also protect the data and address lines from RF that comes in that could affect address decoding or the state of the data bus when you're reading it too, because. Yeah, RF is analog, which could affect your digital signal. So your local AM station can actually uh, affect the uh, computer <laughs> if it's not properly shielded. I, I thought it, it was great from the sun. <laughs> well, cosmic rays get screwed up. Yeah. That was happening to NASA out in space. They, so. they always yeah. say that uh, cosmic rays will switch uh, a computer computer from one state to another. Yeah, it can flip, yes. flip bits. Yep. But yeah. but most of that is in space, though, because our atmosphere usually shields us from most of the ones that will cause that here on Earth. And and what about those bombs that are um, neutral? EMPs? Neutron we bombs? Don't yeah. do that. Those will always. There's Neutroid. There's Neutroid. They just short right across, right? You might find your cocoa's cutting well, edge. It'll induce yeah. voltages in the line that exceed what the chips are capable of doing. Okay, Which is why most electronics get fried if they're exposed to an EMP pulse. So they all turn to one instead of zero. No, it's usually internal smokage, and then the chips yeah, don't work it anymore. Basically, blows the chip up. Yeah, it turns to one, but uh, say with a couple hundred volts instead of five. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's like we were talking earlier about Bill Noble, you know, using the pliers to figure out what circuit right? breakers are on or off on a wall plug. <laughs> Break flash of light. Anyway, that, that was a pretty interesting discussion because I didn't really understand what that meant. I actually do understand it a bit better now. Um, and yeah. I'm not a hardware guy, so that's, that's pretty impressive. It's really interesting yeah. on an oscilloscope looking at the signals and you think of them as perfect, you know, ups and downs. But, you yeah. know, it shoots up and it overshoots and it comes back down then it drops. What kind of a mess is this? Yeah. Oh, and there's actually, plenty of more actually, hardware. Spe- are good. Oh, I was going to say, speaking of an oscilloscope, the best person to watch diagnosing a digital circuit would be Adrian on some of his stuff when he's fixing a like the Coco One that one time with the stuff that he got from Tim. Yeah, you should you should tell or, the viewers uh, who Adrian is and where you can find what he's talking about. Adrian's Digital Basement on YouTube. 
It's a uh, he fixes using oscilloscope, digital and the old fashioned analog ones. Um, it, it, it it's just great because works. he shows when when you watch on the oscilloscope when the RAM goes from one to zero, you see physical analog noise on the lines. So that pr- shows you that the digital circuit is analog because you see noise spikes and voltages. It's just you get to see what how the circuit's working in ways that you just thinking logic one zeros. Well, there's extra stuff that happens. Yeah. Now I do want to mention and, there's there's been a lot of more chat here from the hardware experts in in the uh, actual chat itself, uh, ranging from you know Rocky El Pedro and and Mark Siegel and and, and Dave Wormfood and Mike Miller. So Franklin Harris. Uh, Basically, if you can watch the video version of this particular portion of the show, I would probably do that. Just watch the chat going up the left side of the screen because you'll see even more details than we just went through. I don't want to dwell on it for too much longer. Um, but basically, there's a lot of uh, a lot of input on exactly how this works and, and how it affects read-write lines and all kinds of stuff. So, I just uh, wanted to stuff. ask one more question to you experts out there. If, you, uh, if you're uh, soldering a chip... Um, and you you have electricity in that needle, you know, that you're going to put on the chip leg. Why doesn't that ruin the chip? It can. It's not electricity. It can? That's why we have grounded. <laughs> if, uh, if the iron uh, ch- is tips. not properly grounded and the board is also not, you know, if you're not <sighs> doing the ESD prevention, if your iron touches the... um component you can fry the chip <clears throat> even many many years ago in the 80s radio shack sold a soldering iron for a few dollars more that had a grounded cord you mean a th- third prong that had a yeah. third prong that grounded the the chip specifically independently of the ac that powered the heater ah. so it was yeah. double protected in a way and even Radio Shack sold that for you know eleven. Bucks. I always wondered about that, and I always, you know, if I ever had a chance that I had to solder something, I always thought to myself, "Now, am I screwing this up by doing this?" You know, I did, not until that little insulator wears out on your soldering iron. <laughs> remember, yeah, Ron, that, that remember, Ron, that electricity is a circuit. It wants to go and come from whatever the source is. Yeah, so it was, it was a little bit of insulation on that when you bought it, but is it still there? So as as long as the return path is you know not through the chip you're trying to solder, it's not ah, going to be an issue. Okay. And then there's so. also I've got some Radio Shack um, chip insertion tools, and those chip insertion tools have a screw terminal on them for connecting a ground line, so you don't fry the chips. <laughs> Just the the motion of putting the legs in could cause electricity. Mm-hmm. You yourself, with your clothing rubbing on your skin. Um, remember the old walking over carpet balloon and rubbing it on your hair. Yeah, you yourself with your clothing, the carpet, the chair, you can generate static electricity. That's why you should always be wearing the ESD wrist, which goes to a uh, ground plane. You should always be protecting your equipment. From ESTs. Give you an example. A friend of mine was walking across the carpet, grabbed his mouse. A inch electrical spark went from his hand to his mouse, fried the mouse and the keyboard. Not so great for his hand either. So static. ESD is bad. Very bad. 
Okay. Okay, so I'm going to go on to the next story, which is hardware again. So hopefully we don't go for another hour. <laughs> but Let's see, but we, yeah, definitely if, if you're interested in this topic, uh, definitely check out the video, and you can check the uh, live chat with a bunch of hardware experts uh, that were going on for the entire discussion here, with other details beyond what we actually did over the air. So, so next bit of hardware here is actually from Brendan Donnie, and this is MC10. So we kind of covered before that he was working on getting a USB keyboard Atari joystick adapter for the MC10. And he, as he pointed out on his post on Facebook, after recovering from some mechanical fitment issues, the wired USB keyboard Atari joystick adapters for the MT-10 is working well. Now to work on a new 3D printed space surfer between the case halves that move my power and reset buttons and have cutouts for the joystick and USB keyboard ports. And he's got a little bit of picture here. You can kind of see, I'll zoom it up a bit. That doesn't look like an MC-10 anymore. Well, he hasn't got the top on it yet. Yeah, there's one under there somewhere. <laughs> but you can see on the top of the photo here, you can see power and reset. That's the little expander. It basically increases the height of the MC-10 to fit this. Now, I did ask him in the comments here. I said, well, does this work with the Coco VGA? Because he's shown that with a spacer as well on the MC-10. He said, yeah, actually, they both fit in the same time with the same spacers. You can have a USB keyboard and an Atari joystick adapter and the Coco VGA with all of its extra video modes, including 64 by 32, all running in an MC-10 with this one little red spacer. Which well, we've, isn't we've that blue board a uh, the Coco VGA? Yes, it is. And then the green one in the front is the other, uh, you know, the Atari joystick adapter and the USB keyboard adapter. But I did not know if he, if these were meant to be exclusive to each other as far as you know fitting all together. But it does sound like everything is going to fit together just fine. So you can that's a pretty maxed out MC10 at that point. Just add MCDX32SD yeah. and so that board has a power supply running to it, and then uh, MC10 has its own in the back, right? I think he's tapping it off the power. Supply. I'm not sure. I can't see where the wires are going. So, yeah, I think the uh, USB in the front is for his keyboard. Oh, that's not power in. No, I think that's uh, keyboard in. Yeah, you might be having one of those. What is it? OTG adapter? Yeah, because this little connector here, I think, is the uh, USB, and this is the joystick. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Boy, you don't want to plug in electric uh, power supply there, then. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool. The, the two will work in conjunction with each other. And I, we've seen what it looks like with the Kogu VG, the little red band around yeah. to heighten the case to fit it. And it actually looks pretty good. It just looks like a tall MC-10. But now you'll be able to like throw on an IBM PC keyboard on it. And uh, Atari joysticks, like real joysticks. Like I know the stuff Jim Gary has been calling his joypad thing, which is basically just duplicating some of the uh, keys as buttons for like left, right, uh, you know, and, and fire type thing. But this will actually be a full joystick if you write, you know, software to use it. That's cool. Next up, we got to actually we have as many stories on the dragon as we did for the Coco this this uh, week. So it's five of them. Well, five point five, I guess. So Chris Poacher runs the semi-private micro deal, the eight bit years group on Facebook. This is one that you can get public access to, but you have to basically you know ask him to let you in on it. So we had two things that came up. The first one here is pretty cool. It's a, a copy of Micro Deal's mail order catalog, and this is number two. And this came out in around 84 to 85. And this is when MicroDeal had been expanded to do a whole bunch of 8-bit machines in the UK. I thought it'd be worthwhile zooming up to see some of this here. So there's the you know, standard telephone number, priceless number two. So they got an ad for buzzard bait here for £9.95. And they've got uh, a review of the top 10 games from Popular Computing Magazine, including a bunch of MicroDeal ones. But uh, I don't know how easy this is to see here. 
Uh, but they've got stuff for Ataris. They've got hardware and software, complete list there, uh, disc accessories. And then if you go on to the next page, you've got some Commodore 64 stuff there. And then you got Dragon stuff, and it's got all the prices for each individual one. So here you can see some of the stuff that we recognize from North America, some of the Atomics and Spectral stuff that Microdeal basically resold on their behalf, plus a bunch of original titles from the UK. So kind of interesting to see, um, you know, the complete list and what all the machines that Microdeal was supporting at the time. Uh, I won't go through it in detail here, but if you're a member of that group or if you join that group, you can definitely go through it. And then the second one he did here was uh, the very early Microdeal stuff. And this is back when they still had the fairly plain packaging out the full color covers. They actually had some black cassettes here. Most of the stuff you see from Microdeal is all white. So this was a, a, basically a transitional phase in 1983 where they basically used the black tapes, which I think most music cassettes were at that time. So it was probably cheaper, briefly. Uh, a little harder to read and harder to put the masking. You couldn't you know, just put ink on it. You had to get the whiting. Um, but kind of a bit of an interesting history there because I don't think I've ever seen a black um, cassette tape case for a Dragon uh, program before from Microdeal. This is, I think, the first time I've ever seen it. So I don't know how long this lasted when they were using these, but uh, kind of interesting. And I'm trying to remember, I don't remember seeing any Coco cassettes on commercial. And I've got a ton of them back here, probably 40 or 50 original cassettes. All of them are white. I don't recall any being black. So that was, I don't think that was ever used much in North America either, unless one of you guys have seen some, you know, Tom Mix game or something sold in the black cassette. No, but I really like the black cassettes though. Yeah, I'm used to music cassettes being black. There was quite a few there. There was a mixture of black and white. But Next up after that, we have an update from Kieran on XROAR. Now, this is kind of a special um, build that you can do if you're running Linux. Um, and I'll just read it verbatim here just so you guys can understand what he's talking about because I don't understand it all. Um, Linux users who don't mind using or don't mind building from source in the public Git repo for XROAR, there is a CVBS branch. You can open a video options dialog and with simulated cross-color and with one of the cross-color inputs selected, inputs in quotes, adjust various parameters, brightness, contrast, hue, but also enabling various parts of the filter pipeline. Next thing I'm going to work on is making each filter a drop-down to pick one of the many built-ins for each stage. But I thought some people might like messing around with it with what's there now. For those that care, all filters are FIR. Don't know what that means. You guys can explain it after I finish reading. Uh, maximum 23 tap with F sub S equals 14.31818 uh, megahertz or 14.218 megahertz. They'd doubtless be better if much larger with lots of oversampling, but I, for one, don't have the CPU for that. Apologies to Windows and Mac OS 10 users, but I don't really know how to do the appropriate dialog boxes on your platforms. The goal here is that most of this won't need messing around with anyway once I know the settings that work nicely, although brightness, contrast, hue are definitely nice to have around. Uh, and then he had an update here in the comments. Uh, now you get to pick all the individual filters. It will cut out certain parts of the chain and spare your CPU if you turn certain ones off. I need to flesh out the list of filters and maybe describe them a bit better. And many other things, averaging alternate lines and PAL is probably a big one. So... Uh, for the people that understand some of this terminology that went way over my head, um, it, basically my understanding here is there's a whole bunch of filters for doing effects on the video to simulate various different things. And he's actually enabling you to enable or disable them at will with a special build of XROR. Is that kind of understanding it right? Argus. 
And also, I don't know what a uh, FIR is. I don't either. The taps and all this other stuff he's talking about. Any you hardware guys have a better explanation for the layman? So the 14218 uh, megahertz, that's a crystal and i know they usually divide that down for your video so there must be something with the sampling or the refresh rate i do see a comment from mark siegel he says i tried to get him to do a comb filter which i've heard of but i'm not i don't really know what that does kieran voodoo <laughs> So finite input, input response filter is a finite duration because it settles to zero in a finite time. So it's sort of a comb filter. Because it's going to, regardless of the input frequency, it settles to zero in a finite time. So yeah, it's, it's right. Is that right, Mark? Well, we're just, let's just ask Siren to add an extra paragraph. For those of <laughs> us that are newbies. Yeah, I think he's left us in the dust on this one. Yeah. I'm I haven't looked at comb filters in a long time, and I don't remember the specifics. I know that they have teeth like a comb, and it's designed to let certain things through and other things not, but I don't know in this application what they would be. Well, if you're combing fur, F-I-R. <laughs> yeah, it, it should be shaped like a F -U -R? comb. F-U-R? This may not be technically a theoretical comb filter, but it seems to be going that way. Anyway, it sounds like you muck with a lot of video settings and kind of tweak it to your heart's content. It sounds like he's trying to figure out kind of the best balance of these various filters to give the best output to more at most accurately resent, represent what would be coming out of a CRT from back in the day. I'm guessing that's what he's right. Remember kind of a summary of what he's trying to do here with all these complicated bits that actually do the work. Remember all the cool color TVs had comb filters? And yeah. Kent Sure. <laughs> I have no idea. I just turned it on and watched TV. I didn't have. That was what they filter. sold. If you wanted to buy the new XL100 RCA, it had a comb filter. That's why you wanted to put money in that puppy. I've heard of comb sorts, but I, I'm not familiar with the, the hardware side of things. Anyway, it sounds like he's doing some pretty cool stuff. If you have a Linux box that you're running X4 in, if you want to compile it to try out some of this stuff before he kind of settles on what he believes is the best common setting for everybody uh it might be worth you doing some experiments and maybe sending him some feedback so that he kind of knows what direction to go with that curtis i had a question about the sdc that i forgot to ask or i didn't get time to ask or whatever it is but um are we able to go quite a ways with updates without running out of space on the sdc i don't know I don't know how much the ROMs filled in for the SDC DOS extensions he's been doing. I don't know how much room he has in the CPLD to do the uh, firmware for the actual controller. I do know when I originally asked him to try to make 6.09 native mode rights work, he said he didn't have enough room on the CPLD to implement that. Uh, I don't know because of the update he's done now, maybe figured out a, diff a different way to do it or if it just doesn't work at 2 megahertz. Um, so I think the CPLD, he was pretty close to being full. Uh, I haven't looked at the SDC ROM. I don't know, Tim, if you have, uh, as to how much room is left in there. I know extended ADOS 3 left, yet you go up to 16K, and the standard disk basic is only like 6.5. So. Microcontroller. Hmm? Not CPLD, microcontroller. Oh, sorry. Well, it does have a CPLD too. Yes, but that doesn't get updated by the COGO. 
So all uh, memories inside of it, and it's not something you can add memory to. Later. No, I think you'd have to swap a chip, right, Dave? Yes, and of course, since uh, Darren does it all in assembly, it's basically yeah, you you're limited based on what he's done, and of course, since he's made it for a specific set of components, you're even if you change the chip, you're not going to get anywhere. So imagine he's already crunched it a lot to get it in the place it is now, and to rethink that is just going to be a disaster. Right? So down the road, there's only going to be so much more he can do, and then that's it. We have to look at a whole nother um, machine. Well, the microcontroller, I think you could upgrade that and then give yourself some more room and even more speed or whatever. That, I think you could, you'd have to redesign the board, of course, because of like more pins or whatever. Um, the SDC ROM, on the other hand, that you might be hitting the hard limit soon. Okay. As to what you can, unless you do some fancy, you know, MMU paging or something, that's going to make it probably incompatible with some stuff. It's just interesting that it's like a CPU, and you would think that, uh, you know, it only has so much memory, but you you wouldn't think that you could add memory to it, like you know, put another chip on that had memory that it could access. Yeah, that that honestly, that would be a, a question for Darren himself. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Next up, and this is going completely away from hardware. So uh, a guy named, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, so please excuse me if I'm not, but Varun Khanna in the Dragon Users Group on Facebook. He uh, said, how are you today? I just wanted to ask what your favorite games are for the Dragon 30 computer and why. And I'm doing some research for one of my projects for this group soon. So obviously he's doing some project related to games. Um now there was some, you know, a fairly bit of bleed between the the Coco scene and the uh, Dragon scene on stuff like Donkey King and Time Bandit and Cashman that kind of stuff. Obviously, they had some pretty cool original stuff. We just covered one of those uh, Lucifer's Kingdom here just a couple weeks ago on the Game on Challenge, and we've covered some other ones in the past too, including stuff by Stuart Orchard and uh, Kieran himself has of course done a few. Um, but if any of you that have uh, a fair bit of experience with the Dragon games and stuff or even some of the Cocoa ones that we know the Dragon had, if you always want to pipe in for this survey he's kind of taking for whatever this project is that he's working on. Uh, and there's been quite a few suggestions already. I'll just mention a few here, like uh, people mentioned Manic Miner, Jet Set Willy, Airball, Shock Trooper. Um, let's go down a little bit here. Chucky A, of course. Uh, Frogger, Red Meanies, um, Return of the Alien, Bongo Beast, which is one of Stewart's. <laughs> Donkey King and Buzzard Bait, Screaming Abdabs, uh, Phantom Slayer, that's a favorite of mine. Dungeon Raid, Rommel's Revenge. There's a, but there's a ton of them. Uh, but if anybody wants to pipe in and give their own opinions on there, they can follow this uh, discussion on the Dragon group and uh, respond back to them. And it's somehow going to be involved in some project he's going to be releasing to the group later on. So I don't know if he's just trying to do a history of it or maybe just kind of getting what's the innovative games for the Dragon. I'm not sure exactly what the project is. I feel free to contribute some ideas and suggestions. Next up, I won't play too much of this. Um, this is on a Spanish YouTube channel, uh, which is a blog of a guy named Manuel Laca. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Uh, but he does a 40-minute tour of the computer museum at the University of Zaragoza, which I believe is in Spain. Um, and it covers a ton of retro computing stuff. And some stuff is even earlier than that. They get into some like the minis, and they even go back into some things like the first mechanical switches and stuff from the 1830s and things. So it's a pretty interesting thing. You'll have to turn the closed captioning on because it's all in Spanish. Oh, she speaks Spanish, of course. 
Uh, but they actually go through the Dragon 32. Now, of course, the Dragon 32, after Dragon Data failed in the UK, a Spanish company called Eurohard actually got the rights to it and actually did sell and manufacture dragons for a while. So he does a brief little bit here on the Dragon here uh, and covers both the uh, the UK time period as well as the Spanish time period of getting manufactured in both countries, uh, spanning between 82 to 87. So it's got a lot of cool history. If you don't mind closed caption stuff, uh, turn on the auto translate in YouTube and you can actually kind of follow along. But it, it looks like a really cool museum. I mean, I kind of wish I did speak Spanish because um, it looks like there's a lot of cool, interesting stuff in there. A lot of it we've seen other UK computers and other European computers, I should say, some North American computers, but a lot of like custom stuff from Spain and a lot of older stuff too that uh, goes into the history of computers and how computers came to be in the first place from the mechanical side of things all up to electronic age. So it uh, looks like a really cool museum. I would definitely recommend if you're into the history of computing that uh, it's definitely worthwhile checking even with the subtitles. Next up, and I'll play this in its entirety. Um, <clears throat> this is a uh, YouTube channel called The Only Way is OLED Display. Um, not sure I agree with that, but okay. Um, but basically what he's, he's doing here is that basically it's the 40th anniversary of Dragon 30 of uh, the Dragon User magazine, which their first issue was the May 1983. Uh, I'm not sure when that actually came out, if that was probably March or April, because usually magazine covers tend to be a little bit advanced. They stay on the newsstands longer for sale. Uh, but he kind of goes through and he goes through showing some pictures of some software that was advertised in Dragon, some covers from Dragon, some ads from Dragon User magazine. Sort of like a mini history. It goes through when it was, you know, the full color covers, like you can see on the start of the video here is the very first issue from May of 1983. But then later on, same thing Rainbow did. Rainbow went to, uh, you know, newspaper format the last couple of years to try to get the cost down so they can keep publishing as long as they could. Dragon went, you know, being full color covers and stuff and went back to being just black and red ink for the same reason, shrunk the size. They did the same thing, basically. They had a passion for the Dragon user and wanted to keep it going as much as they could, as long as they could even though it was a money-losing proposition as the uh, you know, user base shrank, active user base shrank. So I, I think it's a pretty good tribute to it to kind of see his history of the dragon, so I'll just play it in its entirety. Let me know if the uh, background music he's got playing, it's annoying, I can mute it if you guys really want to just see the video stuff. And feel free to comment during the video if you see something cool. Color ads from Microdeal. The Cusper guy sort of looks like a bad magazine guy. Yeah, Alfred Newman. Yeah. Penguin, I didn't know that was available for the Commodore 64, the Atari, and the Dragon. That was, that was news to me. I should mention these are in chronological order, too. So right now we're in, like, June of 85, so a couple years after it started. Did they not know that the color computer wasn't 32K much? What was, what was that? 
did they not know that the color computer didn't come with 32k it was only what 16k or 64 right um, well, the Coco One did have a 32K model. The board came with 32K. So if they sold that equivalent in the UK, it would have been 32K briefly until the 64K Coco and Coco Two came out. Does that tell you? Be- In other words, we see that because of the time it was. Probably because 83 would have been the before, like May of 83 would have been before the 64K Coco and Coco Twos came out. Those didn't come out till September, October in North America. I'm not sure when they would have hit the UK. And here you can see Dragon, when they went to the cheap version with like no full color covers, it's just, you know, black and red ink and a smaller size, but they, they kept going as long as they could. In fact, they went to subscription only. Um, you wouldn't be able to get on newsstands anymore. How far did they go a year? 88, I think was last year. Oh. Which considering uh, the Dragon stopped getting manufactured about 84, you know, that's uh, so the a pretty, pretty decent run considering. The rainbow went to what ninety three. Yeah, but the good remember the Coco three kept getting sold at Tandy till nineteen ninety two or yeah. nineteen ninety. I think ninety or ninety one. When when does the Coco three stop selling? Any of you radio shack guys remember? I thought it, I thought it was ninety one. Yeah, so they lasted two years after the the Tandy shut down, or two or three years after the Tandy quit selling it. And Dragon user, like, I think the Spanish Eurohard quit selling the Dragon 84, 85, and they kept going till 88. So roughly about the same. They lasted about as long. And that's the end of the news. And then there's us. <laughs> yeah. No, I do uh, I do have that little get put graphics demo. I don't know if you want to do one last commercial, Mark, while I get this kind of set up. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Terry Stegge from Retro Tech Time and the Tandy Shack, and you're watching The Coco Nation, the world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. From the makers of the Switcheroo. Wallaby Cable, Color Computer 3 Dual RGB Cable. Get yours today at CocoMan.biz. In 1988, a scandal rocked the Color Computer community.
Okay, okay. so before I get to the, uh, the little uh, demonstration, which is basically what I was working with Tier City Retro Gaming on YouTube there about the masking and some other tricks with get put buffers, I did want to mention um, Ken and I will be doing a seminar in Base 9, Nitrous 9 again uh, at Coco Fest this year. Um, but we've kind of covered pretty well all the new features that have been added. So we want to get into some more tips and ticks tips and tricks and techniques <laughs> and um basically we're, we're going to take some suggestions uh if you guys can send an email to me at curtis Boyle at uh, sasptel.net or you can get a hold of ken on uh, canadian retro things youtube channel leave a comment if you want to see some certain things covered but we're going to do a bit of a live thing on the coco discord tomorrow at uh, 4 p.m eastern and don't forget the times zone change for those that uh, actually do change their times uh Ron and I are smart. We don't do that silly thing. Nope. Um, but uh, basically, we'll be taking some suggestions and maybe, you know, maybe make some general discussion, something we can cover. If we get a lot of suggestions, obviously, we won't be able to cover them all in a one-hour seminar. But maybe we'll take the ones that seem to be the most common or the ones that uh, probably are the least obvious to figure out on your own type thing. And we'll try to, you know, build a few things around that. And I'm, I'm since Ken's a bit manure to the Nitro 9 and Basic 9 as well, I'm, I'm Feel free to have your own suggestions, Kenneth, if you want to learn how to do certain things. And since you're actually going to be helping give this seminar, you get more pull than anybody else. So uh, feel free to stomp everybody else there <laughs> as far as suggestions go. So tomorrow on the Coco Discord at 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 2 p.m. Central, and I think 1 p.m. for you in what is your West Coast time called there, Ken? Pacific, uh, Pacific I believe. <laughs> we have like Arizona that. time. Yes, it is. Yeah. Arizona special. Mm-hmm. So now for something completely different, I'm going to do stuff in Disk Basic, not in OS9, what? which is not something I normally do at all. So I hope somebody's recording this. Oh, yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. This will be as scandalous as Nick Marini's being part of the OS9 users. That's right. I'm recording this now. <laughs> We're recording it for posterior. Or a scandal oh, video, too. Okay, so basically I sent him a little demo of three programs, and I'm not going to go super into detail, but uh, if anybody has any questions, feel free to email me. The source code's there, obviously. Um, if you want to actually get this disk image, I've actually got it on my site. I don't have it as a link. It's a direct access thing. And uh, the URL for that is L, the letter L, curtisboyle.com, slash, and then all lowercase, get-put.zip. And that will contain the disk image with these three little demo programs. And it also contains a text file where I kind of try to explain probably a little bit too wordy and technical, knowing me, um, exactly what each one is doing. So you'll see there's three things here. There's put background or put BKGND, uh, big get, which means getting a really large buffer, and saucer. Now, saucer is not one I did. Saucer is actually from Rainbow Magazine from way back in, uh, what the heck was it, 83 or something like that? But it was basically a demo of, of using some undocumented features for doing faster get put buffers um, than what's documented in the manual for extended basic. And basically, these are based on even byte. Uh, you have to get or put on an even byte, and you don't use the G option. So we'll get into that in a second here. So the first one I want to get into, there's one big bug in the extended basic manual. And I know Alan Huffman has touched on this in some of his blog posts on his Subitha software site. Where basically they tell you a uh, way to calculate how much room you have to reserve in an array for a get put buffer, and it's completely wrong. It uh, basically is telling you five times as much memory as you actually need, which means you're very limited to how much room if you follow their 
examples of how big, many, many Git put buffers are, how big your Git put buffers can be. The proper way of dealing with it and to figure out exactly what it should be is that you have to remember that every real number, now you do a dim, like all uh, numeric variables in basic are real. So there's no integer like basic nine has or some other computers have. So it takes five bytes per character for a floating point number. When you're doing a dim of an array for a get put buffer, basically it's just treating them as just bytes. It doesn't care that everyone's five bytes. But the way the extended basic manual explains is that they're telling you to reserve five bytes of numeric array space per one byte of graphics. You're blowing the other four, basically. Like it's just wasting a ton of space. So there's a bit of a calculation you can do. Basically, you have to figure out, depends on what screen mode you're in, because we have two color modes and four color modes. So a byte in a two-color mode will be eight pixels, and a byte in a four-color mode will be four pixels. So if you wanted to get a shape that's like four by four in the four-color, it would be four across, would be one byte across times four lines down. So you only need a dim of, you know, whatever you want to call your array, of four to fit that entire get-put buffer. If you follow the extended basic manual, it'll be telling you to use 20, 20 bytes instead, five times as much. So one demo I did here was big get. And what I do here is I actually create an array big enough to hold an entire screen, a pmode 4 screen or a pmode 3 screen in one get put buffer, which if you follow the extended basic manual, you can't even dim enough an array to do that. It's going to take like 30K and you have no room for your basic program. Uh, but actually, you don't need to do that. So. So I'll get some, actually, maybe I'll do it for you. I'm running on a Cocoa 3, but this is actually runs on a Cocoa 1, 2. Should run on a Dragon just fine, too. So in this case here, you can see I did dim SC1229. I did that basically by calculating a 256 pixel by 192 pixel um, divided by 8, because it's on a P mode 4. There's only, um, you know, one bit per pixel. So eight bits in a byte. You can fit eight pixels in a byte. And basically, the size of the screen is 6,144 bytes total. And basically, because a floating point number takes five bytes per digit or per um, entry in an array, you take 6144, you divide it by five, and it rounds up to 1229. Now, Alan Huffman, I did send him this just to kind of review it. And he mentioned something I'd forgotten, but in this case, I didn't bother changing it because it doesn't make a huge difference. But all dimensioned arrays in Microsoft Extended Basic have an element zero. They start at zero, not at one. I did the math based on one. So I'm actually, I'm reserving five bytes too many. You can actually probably drop this down. Mary, I don't, can you guys see the cursor that I'm holding over top of this? Can you only see the screen? Yeah. That's good. Okay. So this dim here is basically enough to hold an entire P mode 3 or P mode 4 screen. 6K, basically. And still leaves you a fair bit of room for your basic program. Um, and then I've got P mode four comma one screen comma one PCLS zero. So I'm just you know creating a screen. And then I do this other little trick here where I tell it P mode three, but no screen command. So what that does is it tells basic I'm dealing with four color mode now. And if you want to have controlled artifact colors on a NTSC based cocoa, this is the easiest way to do it. You tell it the P mode four comma one basically tells it it's going to be doing a two color screen. The screen one comma one is saying color set one and graphics mode, display that screen. Now, once you do that, if you go and change to P mode 3, but don't do a corresponding screen command again, you're telling BASIC to treat it as a P mode 3 screen, but the hardware is still treating it as a P mode 4. So in this case, it's going to be the you know white border 
black and white, but now with artifacted red and blue. And then I just do some random color and random lines and stuff like that. And that actually will get the entire screen, clear it, and then put the entire screen back on with a put command. So I'll just bounce the tail end here. So basically, you can see here, I PCS a random color just to make sure that I'm showing that I wiped the screen out with something else. And then I'll you know, pause delay so you can see it. And then I'll actually we'll do a put from 00255191 with the FC. You'll notice when I do the get above, I'm doing a get to the SC array, but I'm not using the G option. So this this get will only work in even byte boundaries. Since I'm doing the whole screen, every line's on an even byte boundary, so that's not a problem. Then I do another little pause delay, and then I go back and clear the screen again. So I will quickly demonstrate this so you can see what it looks like. I'm going to turn on the artifact colors here, display composite. So that's that's the first trick is I'm using PMOD4, PMOD3. And now I'm doing a PCLS to a random color and then putting that entire screen back on, which is a bit slower than the PCLS, as you can see. But still, that's not bad for dumping 6K and uh, taking a lot less memory than what Tandy had said. So you can actually get and put an entire screen in one shot. And, you know, 32K, I've still got 16K free. So it, it, under the Tandy scheme, I would have been out of memory before I could even run the program doing the large array. So that's one trick. Well, two tricks, actually, because it shows you how to do artifact colors controllably uh, under basic. And then it also does the uh, trick of not reserving so much room that you don't need to do. Then you can get put an entire thing. So I'll reset just so I get my memory back to normal. Next one I'll run is the saucer. This is the demo from Rainbow. And this shows the trick of doing the even byte uh, get put buffers. Oops. Trying to type around the mic sucks. So this one basically, it has a little drawing of a saucer. And it's using a trick that I know Nick has used uh, in assembly language too, where if you want speed, you, you do your get put buffers rather than do the, all the bit shifting stuff, which is what the G option lets you do on get, where you can tell it to shift uh, you know two pixels over, which is shifting between bytes. It has to do a bunch of you know rotates and shifts and stuff to get that to work, which is work. <clears throat> if you can keep things going on even byte boundaries, it can just dump bytes raw. It's almost like you know, how, um, it's kind of like compiled sprites are basically the closest thing you possibly get. Make it a wider screen so you can see more of the listing. So this was originally by Andy Cluck, um, October 1984, Rainbow, page 44, if you want to read the full article. Um, Andy Cluck also is the guy that did Space Ambush for computerware. So he actually wrote a semi-language games for Coco. That's a Galaxian clone, if you haven't seen it already. Uh, but basically what he's doing here is he's drawing this little saucer, and it's a pretty decent-sized one. Um and the first demo, the first part of the demo, you'll see it running with normal get put. This is with the G option, bit shifting, and it'll you know move the saucer up and then move it diagonally up to the right using the normal get put that they explain in the manual. And then he runs it again, but this time he actually does four separate gets for a two pixel offset, a four pixel offset, a six pixel offset, and then does you know the raw byte boundary puts based on those. So you have to get you know a little bit extra space to fill the bytes and then draw them over top. But you can see the speed difference, as you'll see here, because the first part of the demo will show it at the speed as shown in the extended basic manual. And then if you use this trick without using G, 
and using even byte boundaries, how much faster get puts can be. So you can actually do some more arcade style games. So this is the normal G. You can kind of watch this ripple effect as it's drawing. I mean, considering a lot of computers did not have get put buffers at all back in the day, this isn't, you know, it's not horrible. But the speed difference you'll see now using the even byte boundary and the non-G option, still using get put. So that took 22.63 seconds to run. And this is using the other method. That shaved it down to 7.7 .7 seconds. So it takes about a third the time. And that's at regular speed. So now if we wanted to run at double speed, I'll use the Cocoa 3 double speed because I'm using the Cocoa 3 emulator. But Cocoa 1 and 2 speed up would also speed this up. So now we're running at 1.78 megahertz. This actually doesn't look too bad with, the, with this double speed. It took 11.2 seconds, but now look at that comparatively. 3.85 seconds. So if you, if you want to do fast graphics using get put, I will mention, like we were talking about the uh, Tier City uh, retro programming was doing the stuff where he's trying to do the background masking to get stuff not to destroy the background. This method does not work for that. This is only if you're doing even byte boundary puts and you're not worried about the background at all. So this would be good for like a space game where the background's going to stay black all the time. Um, but you can definitely write some much faster games using that kind of technique or graphic demos or whatever else you want to do. So that's uh, that one. And then the last one is basically kind of what his video covered, which is running the uh, get put buffer background. So I tried to make mine a little bit more obvious. You can see the different pieces of it as it's running. So here on the top in the green area, and I use the same P-Mode 1, two pages that he used in his demo. Um, the upper left one, which is the blue box with the red X through it, that's the actual sprite, quote unquote, get put buffer itself. And then the one on the right on the green is the background mask. And basically what that is, is that anything that's green will show the sprite data. So the blue and the red in the box on the left. And anything that is um, red will show whatever's in the background underneath it. And then when I basically I and the mask on the right, the red box a little across the middle, I and that onto the yellow. And then I or the actual sprite data, which is the blue box with the red X. And basically the combination of those two means whatever's underneath the mask part will just show up and the background and keep it intact. So now you're seeing that I'm putting a shape that had a green background over top of yellow, and I could put random lines or other shapes or whatever else underneath, and it'll actually leave the background intact. And it's it runs fairly quick. Now, if you remember him when he was using the keyboard to move stuff around, you can actually see it kind of drawing the background mask first and then drawing it. And he's using bigger sprites, so it'll be more obvious than my smaller ones here. The the secret to get around that is basically draw it off screen. Like the fact that, you know, I, I can draw stuff on different pages. That's one really powerful thing about Extended Basic is that you have these different pages where you can draw stuff that the player does not, never sees and, and have everything pre-drawn and finished and clean and you don't have to watch ripple effects and all kinds of things. And then you just either display that screen by doing, let's say, a P mode 1, 3 or whatever, 
or you can get that shape from that page you can't see and then just put it on here pre-rendered so you don't see any other drawing effects either. It just draws it. Um, and I don't know if you could see on the bottom, if you watch the bottom row of stuff, you you can see the ripple or the or the drawing effect a little bit. This is a small sprite. So it's not as obvious as his was, but you can very briefly, I don't know if it shows up in the stream, you can very briefly see the green and mask going on the background. And that that basically you can go through and I, this is a bit of a bigger program because I put a lot of comments and also I drew up, you know, that stupid shape, et cetera there. But uh, it's a pretty good little tutorial. Like I said, you can get it off my site. Um, if any of you forget what the URL is, you can just uh, text me in Discord in the basic channel or something and I'll, I'll give you the link. If there's enough, you know, requests for it, maybe I'll actually make it a public link as opposed to a private one. But that was just to show some get put buffer tricks that you can do. And this is the kind of stuff we'd like to cover in, in the basic nine seminars if there's any tricks like this. There's a bunch of others too. Like there's a way to do clipping on the bottom of this. Of a, basically, you can run run stuff going through an invisible hole in the ground and, and things like that. There's a whole bunch of different things you can do that uh, you can't really do here. Like I said earlier in, in the uh, podcast, that the one disappointment I have with Coco 3 Super Extended Basic, you have these new graphics modes, 16 colors, and really cool stuff like that. But they didn't get support the multiple pages anymore. And if you had 512K, you perfectly could. The gimme can put 512 or uh, 32K or 16K graphics screens all over the damn place and use what we are called page flipping or double buffering, depending what terminology you use to. You could do these same types of tricks, but Basic did not support that. And uh, Basic 9 and Nitro 9 does. So, in fact, it's uh, more extravagant than you can get in regular extended Basic. So. Anyway, that might give you some ideas of some things to think about what to ask me and Ken tomorrow as far as what kind of things you'd like to see us to cover in the basic nine. Um, the reason we're doing this ahead of time, too, is that uh, if you guys pick some uh, topic I'm not too familiar with, I might have to research it myself before I can give you an answer. And I'd rather not uh, just do a question and answer session at the Cocoa Fest because then you guys might stump me and I'll look like a complete moron idiot more than I normally do on the show here. So um, join us tomorrow. If you guys have any suggestions or just want to see what other suggestions other people come up with, and maybe that'll trigger a suggestion of your own. Where do we see you tomorrow? Coco Here. Discord. We'll just do a okay. public streamy thing. Ow. <laughs> Freaking cat. If um if I if I could have a couple minutes, I do have a small little update from something that I showed earlier. It'll sure. take just take two minutes. Okay. I'll go. I'll go ahead and uh, switch my uh, screen here real quick. So um, let me just do this. Well, we don't have to play your intro intro twice. No. <laughs> no. Okay. So I showed this earlier, and uh, was it was it Paul that mentioned uh, what he? It was a digitizer cable, I believe. I yeah, somebody remember. mentioned that it might be. Yeah, right. in, the, in the chat. Yep, in the chat there. So I went out and looked on the archive, and yeah, there's the uh, there's a program out there called the Digitizer Three Plus, and it was for the Color Computer Three, and uh, it actually has the uh, uh, instructions out there. And so I printed these out, and I was kind of reading through it just a little bit um, on the back, which doesn't it doesn't print out very well, and it's almost a blank page <laughs> from what you can see there. It, it talks about building your own cable, and so this might have been something that you didn't buy, you built. And it uses the six pin uh, DIN and it talks about using the, uh, uh, in the, in, in the instructions, it talks about using a mono plug. They used a stereo plug here, but that would, it would still work the same if you use the right wire in there. 
Um, and it also talks about using a um, a one microfarad uh, a tantalum capacitor. And I, I slipped the sleeve off the uh, the end of the dim plug, and inside here there is a a small capacitor. So that is exactly what this is. This is the the digitizer for. Um, uh, it works through the uh, Coco Three left joystick port, and when you run the program, it allows you to do some digitized sampling. And it looks like you can you can grab some samples. You can I, I'm talking a little bit out of my league here a little bit though, but it, it shows how you can grab these samples and then how you can. It also has some machine language routines that you can use to uh, incorporate some of these sounds. So. Where's um, the eighth-inch jack plug into? This will plug into your audio source, whatever that may be. Wow. Maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's your computer and you're playing some wave files on your computer or something, but you would just you would sample the audio through that. And you're saying it's mono? Yes. So I, I just thought that was uh, that's exactly what it was. So I appreciate uh, whomever it was that, uh, that that chimed up about that. So now at least I know what this is. <laughs> and then the other thing I was going to show because if somebody mentioned it, but I also have this here, and uh, I think this is what we're. This actually plugs into your cassette port, and then you plug your audio into here, and then that would allow you to, like let's say you had a. Uh, uh, like you want to use your phone or something like that, you could plug a phone jack into there and plug the other end into your phone or into your computer to where you could play a wave file um, into the uh, directly into the cassette port through the audio through the audio port. And there's a couple different versions of this. I mean, you could use a regular cassette cable that would uh, that goes and just plug that into the audio. But so I just had this also with it. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to just wanted to share that a little bit uh, that I went out and whoops. Found that when you opened up the um, the plug on the cable, did how many wires were going to the um, into the cocoa? Because um, I'm wondering if if because he's got a stereo jack on one end, whether he's feeding the cables to the both the uh, X and Y of the. Uh, of the joystick. Oh, and recording two six-bit oh. ones, like say the left channel. The right yeah, channel. maybe it's maybe it's an option for stereo. I think he's only, I think he's only using the one. Right. Uh, More uh, likely, use the stereo jack to not confuse whatever audio device you plug the plug into. You wouldn't want a short input and output together on a stereo. Well, he might he might have had a um, a stereo cable. He just um, bodged well, that. Right. Tie the both left and right together. Well, you know, assuming you're going yeah, to yeah. plug it into a stereo device, you don't want to just take a mono jack and short the two left and right together. You want to go on and yeah, use yeah. a stereo jack, even if you only snip one channel. Next yeah, time, they, Brian, take pictures. Yes, they um, <laughs> right. Make it make a chart. <laughs> no, one of one of the wires was just uh, was just terminated with a little bit of heat shrink. So he's uh, only he was only using just uh, the ground the the ground shielding. Yeah, to be to be yeah. honest, I remember these they they the recording rate even on the Coco Three was only like eight or nine kilohertz or something like that because of the way you have to do the whole ramp reading yeah. and stuff for the joystick. And if you're trying to do that on two channels at once, like the X and the Y, you're going to be chopping that in half. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be like four or five kilohertz best case scenario mm -hmm. of reading it. So I imagine they would only use mono unless you don't care about quality. So you could technically, if you're trying to do like a, a explosion sound effect in stereo, you might be able to do something like that. Where if it's a bit noisy, you don't care. 
Right. And, and really, you have to output to a orc ninety then. Yeah. Been beating our head against for a while now. <laughs> I was looking to see if I can slip this off again real quick here. And take pictures. <laughs> Charts and oh, grass. Wow. I'm telling you. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to take any pictures right now, but uh, now nah, that's not slipping off for me right now. I had it off earlier with a screwdriver when I stepped away, but uh, anyway. Um, yeah, so I thought wow, you guys it should might... be fun <laughs> seeing you stab yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, oh, tickets on. to that, right? Ooh, live blood. Go to the overhead cam quick. Watch our numbers <laughs> soar. <laughs> Coco Nation number 304. Oh. Okay. Version. There we go. Here you go, guys. If you want to spotlight me again here, I'll. Uh... We'll see if we can zoom in real close here. See how well this comes in. Um, Genuine 1970s wood grain. Let's see here. It's kind of hard to see. Whoops, wrong, wrong. Oh, Jesus. You know what, guys? You know, you think I know, <laughs> you uh, the wrong you think <laughs> know what I'm doing here, huh? Turn on the camera. That's the type of demo I do. There you go. Yeah, open up the room. No, what I was, I was struggling with it because it's like, why is this? It Maybe you can play music for a while. It's like it didn't come apart. It didn't come apart that hard the last time. And then I go and take the wrong darn one apart. Here, this came apart real easy this time. This intermission is brought to you by. <laughs> okay, let's see here now. Let's try this again. See if this will zoom in or not. It's kind of hard because everything's kind of black and white. Put put your hand under it or something maybe to force the camera to focus higher. Zoom out. Just give up on size and go for sharpness. Start try capping your hand under it. Does that focus it? Well, I zoomed in so far. It still can't zoom. So you can kind of see right there. There's a there's this is it ground ground wire right there. The shielding, yeah. And then what you can't see in the bottom right here is there's there's a white cable right there underneath my finger. You need a pointer. <laughs> you want a pointer? Yeah. You want a capacitor in the black? There you go. So right here, if it if it uh, what it's, I need to get some light in here. You can't quite see it because it right in right there. In that uh, there's a heat shrink over it. That's the capacitor, and it's going to pin. I got this upside down. I can't. Let's see. It's going to be pin. Uh, is that pin five? Can't remember if it goes clockwise or counterclockwise around the whole thing. Pin pin five. Yes. Yeah. So, that's so it's, just, go, it's going to it's going to pin five and then uh, pin three, which I believe is is the ground right there. So. so the cap is a DC block, so you don't actually feed actual voltage into the computer, just the AC difference in the signal. Okay. And otherwise, it would just be direct wires through. But okay. That could be evil. <laughs> and then uh, there's a little piece of heat shrinking right here, which takes the uh, – it's kind of hard to see here because it's, it's just not very good. It's kind of hard to see, but there's, the other wire, which would be – because this is a stereo plug – they just have that capped off with a little bit of heat shrink over it, so it doesn't make any contact. So there, uh, there's a red and a white and a ground wire, and the white wire is going to the tantalum capacitor to pin five, and the red wire, which would be the other part of the stereo plug, 
um, that just caps off. And then the uh, braided shielding goes to uh, pin three. So once you make one of these up and you run the software, you can record sound. Yes, yeah. you could take yep, you could take audio samples. Mm-hmm. I've never done it before. Um, I don't know if anybody else can speak to the experience of doing this kind of audio sampling. And then how, how are those files saved off as? That I'm not sure about. I haven't whatever the software did with it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Yes, I don't know what kind of a file format that it that it made it in into. But I'm not sure if it says in here or not. So we're recording analog on an analog computer. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's that's all I had there, guys. What have we learned today? Nothing. Hardware is (laughs) difficult. (laughs) Bitcoin's the best. Depending on voltage. (laughs) Right. Meantime. I think that's it, folks. Um, just well, a reminder that Ken and I will be on tomorrow on Discord, Coco Discord. We'll have a little public discussion for questions for the seminar. Um, we've got the well, new game after, for next week. After this show, I'm going to be building, you know, some things. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, remember, we have daylight savings time taking effect. Yes. So that's going to shift our show one hour for those people who do not want to take And here is the outro. This concludes another episode of The Coco Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at thecoconation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to show at thecoconation.com. Coco Nation show would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. The Coco Nation theme song copyright 2022 D. Bruce Moore mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. The Coco Nation is over. Join us on the Coco Discord server. Coco forever. Uh, I still think a screenshot of the uh, Coco with uh, RAM problems or runaway program would be appropriate there. You know, when you have the click and then you have the psychedelic screen. We'll have to get our uh, graphics art department working on that. Yeah. Well, I actually just have to run the kaleidoscope from the uh... audio spectrum. Yeah, out of your spectrum analyzer. <coughs> well, yeah, I think that's it for the show. Okay. Right. Then let's Close just the uh, wave goodbye. Yep. See you all next week. Right, and it doesn't do a damn bit of good for me to wave goodbye because nobody can see me. Cocoa Fest there. is coming. There you go. Hey, <laughs> bye. <laughs>